This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far as you make your commute or just uh, make your day worthwhile. That is the goal of the show, to bring you the latest, the greatest information, research, just ideas to help you lift your life to the next level. You know, we've been lifting all day. And today, in fact, in hour number two of the program, we're going to talk about why you need to lift more. You need to lift weights, Terry. Okay, I'll start. And you need to lift where you stand, too. Okay. It per, it, I won't say who said that. <laughs> there, there, there is many lifts great. you do while standing, so that is sort of irrelevant. That, and comment. the amazing benefits of weightlifting and just not even heavy weightlifting. In fact, it'll blow your mind. The most important key to weightlifting is what? Is it how much? Is it the lifting reps? Lifting weights? Lift as much as you can. You lift. Use your back. The key is you when you lift to when you can no longer carry the weight. Yeah. That breaking point is the key. Which is so, a, it's a huge advantage if you are a, an aging senior. It doesn't matter if you're lifting a three pound weight thirty times. If you can't lift it thirty one times and you go to thirty one. You have all of the greatest benefits of lifting. If you can only do five lifts of a three pounder, and then you or your your muscles are exhausted, then you've just benefited fully from weightlifting. Right, hmm. it's pretty cool. Lift to fatigue. Lift to fatigue is huh. the key to weightlifting, which I had no idea of. We used I, I'm to. I'm going to start doing. It. I'm going to start lifting things. <laughs> You're like, I got soup cans. Let's do this. <laughs> That's what we used we, when we didn't have weights. Yeah, my Campbell's son soup. went on an LDS mission vacation. It's a religiously, yeah. And it's a two-year um, vacation. but he's getting buffed, I and mean, he's like getting ripped. He well, went I mean, as a scrawny little piano player, and now he's getting ripped. You hear about the guys that go to prison, they work out, they go on a mission, they work out. It's kind of similar. It's a, lo- it's a lot like that. So that's hour number two. I don't know why I jumped right to hour number two, but it just blew my mind. Hour number one, this first hour, we've got a great topic about robots. Mm. We're all so afraid of robots taking over Yes, that it's almost like we're hiding in the bushes saying, la, 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 la. Robots aren't a big deal. But our next guest uh, coming up in a few minutes is going to talk about the fact that we probably ought to be investing deeply in robots Mm. and robotics because otherwise we will not be the leader of the industry. And when you're not the leader, then you will ensure that robots will take over. And you'll be the customer. That's right. Right, buying them somewhere else. It's nice to be one step ahead of the robots, though. That's that's the rule. It's the problem when you build them because we want them to solve problems. But when they realize that we're actually the problem, that's the bigger problem. And apparently the future of robots, it's not just for automobile manufacturers and iPhone manufacturers. Robots eventually will be part of your day-to-day, even your home business. Right. Like if you're a saddle maker, working the leather of the saddle. Oddly specific job. I mean, it's weird. But eventually – and you're just making saddles in your little barn. Making saddles. For all the people in your neighborhood of barns. Right. Then robots eventually will become so affordable you'll want a robot to do the mundane task of hammering out the leather or whatever. Right. Boom. Detailed leather work should be done by a robot. (laughs) You're right. 
And or any other home business. Yes. You may, like putting bracelets together. Right. Robots are perfectly created for, robo- uh, for bracelet making. Driving cars. Since that's where everyone wants it to go. There's such yeah. an effort to make that happen and there's such – I have a story about that. Too. But we're afraid of it, the deal is. We're afraid. Well, haven't you seen 2001? I, yeah, of course I, we're I lived afraid. the whole year. I mean I was there the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great year. Did you not see it? 2001 space uh, colon a space odyssey. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. It's a movie. Yeah. I can't remember movies. What if it happens though? What if? What if? I'm sorry, Matt. I can't let you do that. Uh, that voice bugs. Was that the one? Was 2001 the, the the robot that looked like a human, like a mannequin, but was like no. gray? No, it's just a red dot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't like that. That one. controlled all the airlocks. Oh boy. Yeah. It's like, hey, you want to look outside the spaceship? Let's let's open the door. Which I mean, I don't yeah, know if you know no, how that works. That but... wouldn't work well. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna boil the blood. <laughs> uh, I got a lot to do today. We'll get to uh, robotics in a bit, uh, plus some uh, empty news, of course, just because we like to share the things that you didn't even know you needed to know. And um, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, why on earth are is Sean Spicy Spicer, why are we not turning on the cameras? Just turn them on. Just just turn on the cameras in your briefing. Well. It created quite a. As Steve Bannon said, uh, Spicy's put on some weight. Do you remember that text a couple weeks ago? Holy cow. Ah, Glamour shots. Okay, we'll uh, we'll get to all that fun. But first, let's talk headlines, Terry. What's going on that we need to worry about? A new strain of ransomware called Petya wrecked havoc on some of the most established companies in Europe and North America on Tuesday, capitalizing on the same vulnerabilities that froze hundreds of thousands of computers a month ago. The New York Times reports that the new attack used the same national... A security agency hacking tool that's called Eternal Blue that was used in the WannaCry episode, as well as two other methods to promote its spread. Computer security company Kapertsky Labs said about 2,000 systems worldwide were affected. The cyber attack appears to target or appeared to target Ukraine, where government officials and businesses reported intrusions to the power grid, government offices, banks, and stores. The cyber attack, which is believed to uh, originated with a software update for a Ukrainian tax accounting system. It spread rapidly around the world Tuesday with victims including India's largest container port, Russia's biggest oil company, a chocolate factory in Tasmania, and a hospital in Pittsburgh. The, the malware encrypted hard drives demanded $300 in Bitcoin, which actually translates in Bitcoin to like $700,000. I'm not sure how that works. But wow. Petya is really preying on organizations without proper patching hygiene of the Windows operating system. By the way, the British government just uh, christened their newest naval warship, the HMS Queen Elizabeth. It appears to be running an outdated version of Windows XP. Just, just thought, toss it out there. <laughs> uh, also new this morning, at least one nuclear power plant in the U.S. has had its computer systems breached in a cyber attack. That's according to ABC wow. News. Federal authorities are investigating the hack which is said to have not compromised any operational systems. The report does not identify which uh, nuclear facility was involved in the breach, and it doesn't say if it has to well, do with this worldwide attack that happened yesterday or I if this is a new Chernobyl thing. Chernobyl did have a problem. It did. So that was, I guess that's not an American one. By the way, didn't Jeff, didn't you have a patching hygiene problem? 
A patching hygiene? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I thought you said Apache hygiene. No, yeah. Well, you, we know you. We know you had an Apache hygiene problem. <laughs> anyway, we'll get to your patching hygiene so, yeah, problem. Pe- uh, companies don't update their software. They're getting attacked. Boy, whatever. And imagine Windows. And the reason Windows XP runs on systems like this ship is when was it first designed, right. and then all of a sudden the computer systems, that's what they're set with, is whatever the software is running at that time, which was a Looks Windows like XP, apparently. we need apparently. an XP update. Man. Uh, on Tuesday, five years after hitting a, a billion monthly users, Facebook announced it has now hit two billion monthly users. Holy cow. That makes it the largest social media network in the world. It's now bigger... It has a bigger population, quote-unquote, than any country in the world. That's 27% of the world's 7.5 billion people. Nearly one in four people on the planet use Facebook. Unbelievable. It says if Facebook truly wants to connect to the entire world, it's going to need to find a way to reach the 15% of people who live in areas with no internet access. And the many more who can't afford internet access also needs to get itself unblocked in China. Yeah. Then it takes over. Then it's complete world dominance. Then you, yeah. Then you've dominated the entire world, the globe. Another news: there are about 5.7 million unfilled jobs in the U.S., many requiring specific skills. But two thirds of companies complaining about the absence of trained workers, everyone from welders to data engineers. These companies are doing little or nothing about it, according to a new study. In a report earlier this month, the U.S. Business Roundtable, an association of American corporate CEOs, called the skills gap a national crisis affecting our national future, one likely to stretch ahead a decade or more. Companies like IBM and J.P. Morgan are running education and training programs, but a study, uh, let's say a study says more than half of the companies it surveyed said that uh, they struggle even to holistically assess added skills they require. Oh, boy. Right? So they don't know the skills they need, but they need them. And if they don't have them in the next decade, it's going to cause a huge problem. We we got skills that we need. We just don't know what they are yet. So it says the outlook for progress is bleak. The study says when those in need of skilled workers not only are doing nothing about it, but don't fully understand what ails them. See, this is the problem with the future today. That sounds weird to say. Yeah. Because how do you know what you need when you don't even know what you need? But you're not doing anything yeah. about and we can't like anything. so where do we begin? So Exactly. So instead let's just work on the healthcare bill. And of course that And by the way, that's a perfect example. Out. They don't know what they need. Right. So they don't know where to begin to know what they need. Half the people haven't read the bill. Yeah. Anyway. And finally, in less, in, in less than a week, four people were attacked by bears in Alaska, Boy. with two dying from their injuries. Brown bears are more likely to attack, and even that's rare, which is why these recent black bear attacks are worrying officials. So normally it's a brown bear that attacks, yeah. and those are, those are rare, but now all of a sudden these black bear attacks are happening, and they're not sure why. All of a sudden you have two in the course of two days. It's, it's, it's a lightning strike, says a wildlife biologist. Uh, Rick Sinot, when he's talking with CBS, Alaskan officials are telling residents to carry bear spray or a gun while hiking, running, or biking through bear habitat, and if attacked, to throw rocks at the bear or hit it in the face rather than run away or play dead. Okay, so this is what we do. You you, you throw rocks at it, yeah. hit it in the face, do not play dead no. with a brown, a black bear. With apparently any bear. They're saying fight back, don't, don't play dead like you've heard to do. Yeah, I'm fighting back. I don't know. You just, could try to you could try to reason with the bear. Bear, you're breaking it. What am I going to do? Yeah, you could just have bear, that annoying nagging that. scream. Please stop breaking my thing. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste <laughs> good. Why are you here? Oh! 
Yeah, the bear got her. Oh, it sounds like the bear got her. <laughs> Again, more evidence of the animal kingdom rising up yeah. and the mainstream media continuing to cover it up. You know, what is the deal with the media covering up this stuff? I did Actually, not. Actually, no, they report on it whenever it happens. Because uh, it's a bear attack. It's scary. It totally is. What's, what do you think is scarier? A bear attack? Would you rather be attacked by Ooh, a bear? Would you rather? Or have LeBron James's crying face tattooed on your leg? Leg. Really? Yeah. That guy's a moron. You would rather have a permanent <laughs> face of LeBron crying on your calf than you would... And the bear, I mean, a bear attack is going to be over in a few seconds. But yeah. I, I imagine the pain of a tattoo would be much less severe than the pain of a bear attack. No, and it depends how you fight. I oh, yeah, wouldn't yeah. fight. I mean, if you're, a fi- <laughs> if, you, if you remember, if you're going to take on a bear, you fight and you aim for his nose. Where do you aim when you're trying to fight a bear? I would say nose and eyes. Go for the eyes. Yeah. It's like with a shark. You just I, start. When you're close enough to a bear to be going for the eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's over. I think I'd rather have the tattoo, and I'm not even into. I well, don't believe in tattoos. The, the the thing with this tattoo is, like, after a week, you're done. I mean, you well, don't care really. about this. No, he every time he, you wear your shorts to church, he said he did this. <laughs> the, the guy did this because LeBron lost in the finals, and he always he's always crying. So we're just going to go ahead and put this on my leg, and in about ten years, you're going to look down and go, I don't even care about this anymore. But it's on your leg. It's on your leg. He's not a fan of LeBron. He probably doesn't. Re- he probably dislikes him. But LeBron's not going to be playing in ten it's, years. It's a Salt so. Lake City man. Uh, took his disdain for G- King James by tattooing the leg. And th- the neat thing is his, his leg is red because I guess he just recently got the tattoo. But it's a white. Yeah. It's yeah. It's got a perfect contrast. But it, so his, his LeBron's crying face. I mean, it's, he, LeBron's in full grimace. Yes. Painful cry grimace. Wouldn't you just make a T-shirt? Yeah, that's what I would. Wouldn't that make more sense? Imagine what that tattoo is going to look like in about 40 years when his skin starts to sag. He's really going to look sad then. Oh, boy. He's going to look like that, the ugliest dog, that (laughs) mastiff. That really, yeah, that's not going to be good. Uh, Anyway, so that's one thing you can do. By the way, Mel Brooks apparently uh, celebrating his 90 what? Birthday, 91st? He's 91 today. Holy cow. Hear me. Oh, hear me. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15. Oh, lost ten, ten commandments for all to obey. <laughs> so and so there's Mel Brooks. Uh, as Noah. D- as Noah. And des- no, Moses. Sorry, Moses. Moses. Describing the, the loss of five commandments. It's an accident. We could have had 15 commandments. Now we're down to 10. Oh, what a talent Mel Brooks is, though. Really. Um, think of how many roles he's played 91 years young and i wonder if his humor i wonder if he's losing it or is he just oh no i mean he's probably the hit of the real quick best mel brooks movie in your opinion uh space balls really i would go with young frankenstein hands oh, down yeah, no that's good too that's good that's good see that's why you do the movie show We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about why we need to be investing in robots instead of running from them. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier life. (music) 
You know, everybody thought that uh, by the year 2017, we'd all be living a life like the Jetsons, right? With our own little personal robots and computers, everything flying our little airplane cars all over town. But uh, it doesn't seem to be working out that way. You know, the Jetsons didn't seem to fear the robots nearly as much as we do or a robotic advancement in technology. So what would be the best future to kind of continue to avoid the robot world or to embrace it and invest in it and, and, and then enjoy the fruits of having being being a leader in the world of robotics. Well, joining us to uh, talk about it is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, Nicholas uh, Carell. He's he's a professor there, but he, we're actually skyping him in from Europe. And uh, so, Nicholas, are you there? Can you hear us? Uh, yes. Now, Nick, how, how do you say your last name, Nicholas? It's a Corel. Corel. So, so Nicholas, when you, it's a big thing because forever it seems like we've been talking about the fact that robots are taking so many jobs. Uh, all the jobs, you know, are are being taken away by um, automation, by robotics, and then globalization as well. It, but yet, you're you're suggesting we need to embrace this movement instead of uh, running from it. Uh, yes. Um... I completely agree with that view. I, I hear myself a little bit. I have to probably turn off. Um, yeah, turn, yeah, turn down your equipment, and then you'll then you won't have that feedback. Okay. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I've been thinking about this um, too because uh, when you develop technology and um, you hear uh, concerns, then um, you probably shouldn't do it if uh, those concerns are just. And so I've thought about it a little bit and. I came to the conclusion that um, if other people are better at automating things, um, then we will not manufacture anything anymore, uh, but uh, they will. That's right. We turn. I guess we turn over the advantage to the other manufacturers. And um, but one benefit of robotics and, and automation is, I guess, the fact that there are a lot of jobs behind it. Uh, yeah, so that is um, one of the answers people give first and say, well, we will have new jobs that make the robots. And I don't think uh, that is fully true because, of course, you have much lesser uh, robots um, or much less lesser people working in robotic making than uh, robots doing things. Um, I think, though, we will get a whole new um, level of products. So we will have products that are just much more complex than the products we have now and this is uh, how it always has evolved. So when you look at a flat screen TV or something and you go back 50 years and you look at what people would have bought then, um, there is a much, much bigger um, chain of uh, people that are involved, uh, much more companies, much more resources uh, that have been efficiently combined so that this flat screen uh, um, television is actually affordable. So I think that will happen with automation that we will get more and more sophisticated products that have more functionality um, and advance uh, society as a whole, as as it always has done since the invention of the power loom, um, where we now have uh, great yeah. clothes that we can wear um, at very low cost. Is it um, because, for exa- an example of that uh, in the article you wrote was the fact that one of the manufacturers of iPhones also is one of the bigger, uh, aren't they one of the bigger users of robotics and automated systems? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That is what got me originally interested in this um, story, 
because um, I always heard that Foxconn, which has which is making the iPhone and has uh, more than one million employees, uh, that they want to um, replace all their employees with robots. And I always thought, well, I'm a robotics researcher. Um, robotics are not there yet. It's very difficult to do that. And then I read, well, wait a minute, they already have 60,000 robots. And then I realized, well, the robots you need to put an iPhone together are actually very simple contraptions um, that might use, they move a piece of glass over there and place it down and then you apply some glue here or you um, put in a screw there. And the big problem is simply that um, you need to change all this robot manufacturing lines every few months when Foxconn engages in new activities. So we're actually really, really close and Foxconn is buying robots like crazy um, and now they put their first factory to into the U.S. And I was just thinking, well, what happens if um, we will have a robotic manufacturing facility that is operated by Foxconn and owned by Foxconn in the U.S.? Uh, then we probably lost uh, the train completely because then um, uh, we will not be able to uh, employ anybody anymore because it's not about made in China versus made in the U.S., but it's really about how efficiently it is being made. And it, with, I guess, robotics, it can be efficiently made anywhere. It can be efficiently made anywhere and will probably be made um, where uh, transport costs are lowest. Okay. So, so I, one, of the th- one of the proposals or uh, positions you're taking is r- robotics, it's not necessarily going to get its jobs just because, you know, there will be a bigger industry uh, supporting robotics. You're saying it, it's, it is the wave of the future, and if you're not in the wave and leading the wave, you're going to miss the wave. Uh, you're going to miss the wave, um, and you will have subsidized workers that work on products that then get threatened by automated factories that are just next door and crank out the same product for much less. Mm. And there's no trade regulations that can uh, prevent that because as soon as you allow people to erect those uh, those companies, then um, that's it. And so I don't think that uh, prohibiting anything will help because the market will find, find ways. So I think it's happening and we should lead it. And right now uh, we are rather not leading it. And who are the leaders in in the use of uh, automation and robotics technology? Who who What countries are and governments, I guess, are supporting the growth in that area? So the classical leader is Japan, um, which started to threaten the U.S. industry in the 80s and then very successfully has developed um, car manufacturing and optical things and cameras. And they have been massively investing in robots and manufacturing line automation. Um, but what happens now in Japan is they're worried about their elderly uh, community and now the government is um, investing in robots that make life easier for all people. Um, it is really China who invests um, tremendously in manufacturing robots. So um, there's just one province which spends $2 billion. So the government of the province does that to bring robots in and spur development. And these numbers are very, very much um, different than those that we have in the U.S., which are more in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars that are being invested. Hundreds of millions are being invested in China. What... What's, billions what's, are oh, hundreds of billions, uh, yeah, invested in China. Yeah, it's, 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 it's um, two to five billion dollars, and in, in U.S. it's more like a hundred million or oh, two hundred million. So, 
So really, because it almost seems like our fear of um, automation and robotics and, and kind of the, com- the, the complaining that we've been having that all of our jobs are being shipped away or being replaced by robotics – And then the shipping away would be more like globalization. We're losing all of our jobs to the global marketplace. And um, but but you're you're suggesting if we don't if we don't make a few adjustments, like instead of running from globalization, some embracing of it. And on top of that, automation, a focus on investing as a government in automation at higher levels, at like a lot higher levels, then we will probably lose the the automation race to China, which means a lot of those jobs will be going, uh, not just jobs, but a lot of the manufacturing will be going to China. Yeah, the value creation. And I mean, when you say globalization, um, you said it in the beginning, it's globalization and automation working hand in hand. Mm-hmm. What that means concretely is... Um, People buy more and more things that are already pre-made, let's say a carburetor or a cable assembly or something. And so they buy that from abroad and then they assemble it with more automation. So you lose you lose uh, manual labor on two ends, one in the more complex uh, things that you buy already made and then the other robots that uh, put these things together. Now, um, globalization um, will probably continue as well to drive costs and you know first it shifted where the work is done which is china for all the low cost uh, stuff and now it enabled those people to actually do the work and understand what it takes to do the work and now um they automated so uh, should we have never given them the job i don't think so because um of course we lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty by doing that um so i think um that is I mean, I, I feel like the globalization is a different uh, topic almost. Yeah, no. that, well, you, um, but it kind of is the topic of the day in, you know, with the Trump election, with Brexit and with a lot of the kind of nationalistic uh, debates that have been going on through Europe. Um, I, I guess we're facing a reality, though, and the reality is there are jobs and manufacturing uh, going on and there is there is very much a race for this. Um and in a way, the United States, we're just not investing. We're not attacking this race as aggressively as maybe China is. Why is that, do you, do you suggest? Why aren't the United States, why aren't we more aggressively trying to be on the front end of this? Uh, so um, we, the first answer is because we are already, of course, the leaders in worldwide science and technology and that makes us a little bit more, um, you know, laid back. So if China invests billions of dollars and we just hundreds of millions, that also means that China has a lot of catch up to do. Um, the second reason is maybe um, it is uh, a populist um, a thing to do to uh, not think the things through completely. And I'm not sure I'm right with my hypothesis, but I feel like you quickly realize that um, just keeping the jobs here forcefully cannot be the answer. Or, you know, the trade deficit is also something, I have a huge trade deficit with my local grocer, um, <laughs> which then enables me to make money as a professor and educate people. And I don't go and grow my own vegetables right. to, to lower that. So the trade deficit, I, I can't spend more money than I make. Um, but so it, it's a complicated dis- decision. 
um, you asked why we are behind. Um, and so I think the answer number one that I gave is that we are already leading very much and that makes us a little bit lazier is probably the best, um, especially because we haven't seen any policy uh, really kicking in yet. Yeah. So we're still in the process of finding out what, what we should do. Well, and it's almost like we don't understand. We were just joking about this in the startup to the show that we don't understand the future enough to understand what we need for the future. And it's it's like it, it seems like we keep thinking you brought up the idea that by brute force, we could just purely keep all manufacturing in the United States. But as more and more technology advances, as robotics, as automation advances, it it, it it's going to reach a tipping point where it's just not realistic and and or prudent or financially able or the highest quality. And so it seems like if we are not leading dramatically the technology sector and advancement sector of uh, robotics and automation, then we really are going to be very far behind the wave of ever creating or being able to benefit from those jobs. Yeah, so you said the future, in order to understand the future, you need to know the future. Of course, that would be optimal, but if you know the past, of course, we have a lot of precedents of uh, massive and very ugly disruptions from automation um, that then have essentially lifted the entire society to a new plateau when it comes to education and healthcare. Um, so uh, I think uh, this could also be... Um, uh, one way of finding answers on what to do and people say well this time it's different it's going to be so fast uh, and it's going to happen before you know it and only very few rich people will get richer because they own those robots and everybody else uh, doesn't get anything uh, I, I don't think that's true I, I think looking back at the past and looking at what the steam engine has done what the what the loom has done and I mean also what the internet has done because the internet has done a lot but also not that much um, so I, I think that is um, something we, we should not forget. Yeah. No, that's a huge point. Let's do this, uh, Nicholas. Let's take a break, come back, and we'll continue the journey. I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in some of your other insights into robotics where it's, it's not even the manufacturing sectors uh, that, that may be as deeply impacted as, as just our own personal lives. Like you were talking about Japan and the senior market. Uh, of taking care of seniors with with robotics or and automation, as well as just home businesses, the ability to do repetitive tasks over in an easier way. How interesting is our future going to get just in a local level with affordable robotics and the impact that could have on our economy? Stick with us. More with Dr. Nicholas Carell in just a minute. We're talking robots. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Dr. Nicholas Carell. He is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and uh, his research focuses on practical robot applications that target grand challenge applications, such as sustainable food production, manufacturing, the exploration of space. Today, he's talking to us also about why the United States, we really ought to, instead of fearing the robotic movement, we need to probably be aggressively investing in it so that we can uh, 
play a bigger part in it and in leading it and um, in in benefiting from it uh, long term. And also, I think changing the world, being able to influence more lives with our products, with our goods. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Carell, thank you again for being with us today. Matt, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. This is, I think, a fascinating topic. And one of the points, I guess, that we we need to make sure we get out there is um, this this movement's going to happen. We, we've talked about it mainly in the manufacturing world, but robots are... They, they really help us and can have the ability to help us in a variety of ways. Talk about just some of the more mundane robotic or automated systems that could exist for us that, that would change our lives dramatically in our own small private businesses as we're aging citizens. How else can robots impact us over time? Uh, so I really love a video from the 1960s, which is the Unimate robot, which is the first industrial robot that has ever been built uh, for sheet uh, welding applications. And they made a video where the robot made breakfast um, <laughs> for a family and made everything. It was completely staged. And people were sitting at home in the living room and probably had similar radio shows going. And yet uh, 50, 60 years later, uh, we haven't really gotten there. And to me, really, the question is whether this will ever happen, um, because... I feel like if people wanted such a robot that does the breakfast, they probably would have it by now. And right. on the other hand, they do. They have waffle makers and espresso machines and um, things like that, which are all, if you want, robots. They are highly automated. There's the Thermomix, which is now coming to America, this cooking thing where you can throw in stuff and you get out a risotto. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, if you talk to people, and I try to, to see where should I do my research and ask them, do you want a dishwashing robot? And Matt, I can ask you that. Do you want a dishwashing uh, a robot that empties your dishwasher? Oh, that would be great. But it's, I mean, I got kids. How much? I got kids. Yeah, how much would I pay for? No, I mean, right now, that's not where I, what I, I would, I mean, maybe someone to mow my lawn, maybe just somebody to, something to pull my weeds. You, you can buy both, uh, but you didn't. Yeah. Because um, is it just the I mean, cost? It's just, I, I, it, the cost is not low enough yet. Yeah, I don't know. I think the cost and the functionality with the lawnmower robots are something that takes me back and the thing breaks and then gets stuck and who knows. But the dishwasher, I realized uh, people don't want to pay anything for this. And what you need is you need two dishwashers. One is the cabinet and the other one is the washing. Hmm. And then you, you swap, you know, so that solves the problem. But people don't even do that. So I feel like... Um, it is very difficult. So I, I think the answer is what happens is we will see intelligent systems um, penetrating more and more our life. And the real novelty is that now mobility is pretty much solved. So you can have things that navigate in warehouses, in homes um, without getting lost and finding their places. So I think we will very soon see uh, butler robots, which um, are essentially Alexa on wheels, right. you know, the Amazon service, the Google service. And you you will have maybe you can put a Coke on that or you can send it to the kitchen. Um, uh, the other big thing that I think is going to happen very soon is um, people are paying money for uh, mobile robots. So they do buy lawnmowers, they do buy vacuum cleaners, they do buy hotel service robots. But I think all of those robots would tremendously benefit if they had an arm on them. Hmm. So the vacuum cleaner could pick up stuff on the floor. The mower can, you know, remove debris. Uh, the hotel robot can place soaps onto the 
sinks or you know um, retrieve items from the uh, mini mini uh, market. So um, I, I think that is what's going to happen next. But it will be very um, it will not be very disruptive. It will be very slowly just changing uh, what we do daily. Yeah. You you brought up in in this article um, uh, in the conversation you wrote an article to really help U.S. workers we should invest in robots, but one of the points you made too it it seems like is the the actual um, the data I don't know what you call it the programming of the robot is becoming easier than I think we think it is, and I, I guess if the if the programming of a robot is easier and and there's more there's easier systems to use to program a robot then we might be able to start you know maybe smaller mid-sized organizations might be able to be introduced to robotics and automation systems a little earlier even small businesses might be able to use the robots to do repetitive activities yeah that's exactly right i um the collaborative robotic market is booming, and there's a Danish company which has been bought by a U.S. company. It's Universal Robots. Uh, they sell arms for small and medium-sized enterprises, and the software they have is actually so simple that it's probably like Lego Mindstorms. And now I think a lot of people could program something and make the robot work, but the problem is once you put a $60,000 item in your shop, then nobody can touch it anymore because it's hmm. a robot. Yeah. And, of course, the people at home and tuning their cars and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, playing Mindstorm with their kids, but then they don't even know that they could go and maybe retrofit that robot themselves or reprogram it or download something from the Internet, uh, like an app that uh, does this or does that. So I think that is – we are very much where the mainframe industry was um, in the late 90s where you had to – call a guy for $3,000 a day to fly in to right. do some shell scripting for you, which now um, a 15-year-old can do. It's so true. And, um, I mean, do you, do you sense that there will be a day that there will be kind of the robot hobbyist, the person that just loves tinkering, and now they're automating their little business? So these people also exist already um, in the maker community, and I think the most prominent ones are the 3D printer people mm, yeah because they are essentially roboticists if you want they have this thing that moves with multiple axes and no it doesn't have wheels but um i think there are tools like or things that are available like the microsoft connect for 150 dollars, which can see in 3d and see colors and there's open source software with which you can recognize objects um so people start putting things together and creating products um that are possibly um, worthwhile uh, and then move them to Kickstarter or to Indiegogo and um, make a lot of money. So that already happens. Um, it's a small movement and it's expensive to get involved. Yeah. And I think it mostly lacks arms that they, are cheap. That are, that are cheap. And, and so, I mean, I already have a boy. Uh, how old is he? He's probably 14-year-old friend of my son's that – has a 3D printer and is in just loves kind of coding it and designing new stuff, downloading new uh, kind of freeware type of programs. And I, I, I guess this is the future. Um, do we so are we do we have too much fear and too much, I guess, ignorance about what is robotics and and our role as a human in in relation to robotics, what, what is it just about the psychology 
of automation uh, I, I, and robotics? I think I would generally subscribe to fear and ignorance uh, for myself on many levels and on many topics. Uh, I think that's very human. Um, so anything like health, um, and so robotics is one of them. Um, now I'm um, actively involved in these things. And yeah. once you are actively involved in any of these um, topics that are creating fear and that people are ignorant about, uh, then you lose the fear and um, with the ignorance, I think. Um, and that is the answer. Yeah, no, so that's true. I think there have been much worse technologies that we have unleashed on mankind, like um, the atomic bomb um, or maybe CRISPR is the next one, you know, where you have to be really careful what you do with that. Um, and so I feel like um, we usually have that discussion in a very meaningful way and usually do not annihilate the planet um, so far. Now, why would it be now? There's always this opportunity and then fear comes, of course, back. Um, but I think it is mostly uh, done with overcoming um, not knowing about something. Hmm. Yeah, getting more informed about it. What, uh, as we wrap this up, what what do you suggest? Because um, there is a statistic that thirty eight percent of American jobs are at high risk of being replaced by technology within the next fifteen years. So, give us two or three steps of what we should be doing, just as an average person, average consumer, or as parents who are trying to raise our kids up uh, with a future. Um, in the world, uh, what can we be doing to, to maybe better adapt to the world of technology that's coming? Uh, I think to stay curious and, and embrace education is uh, probably the safest bet. And this is also the hardest question you've asked, um, because if you are really in a situation that, you know, you just drive cars or trucks and that's the only thing you can know and it's going to be uh, replaced, then you will be um, a victim like the tens of thousands of people in Massachusetts when the power looms came. And so I think the answer there is also that we should probably think as a society uh, how to capture that. So about what you do is, I mean, when you are smart and you look after yourself, you probably switch jobs fast enough and not to scare anybody, this truck thing is not going to happen anytime soon and it's going to be a very smooth process. And But there will be disruption, and I think we need to think about how to deal with that, how yeah. to, how, what to do and what to offer um, people that are concerned with this and that actually having, you know, that, um, that sacrificed um, for us to have um, these services. I mean, this is the other thing. The, everybody wanted the, power, the loom people until the power loom came. And so um, it's a very – I think that's a very um, long conversation to have. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a very important part. I, I I agree, and I one of the things I did love from your article was the idea that so much of kind of the innate abilities skills um, uh, are already exist. So if if somebody can is already like curious and is working and figuring out their own engine, their own automobile, they're curious about the internet. They a lot of these skills the people have, and they would actually work really well with automation. And and um, even even though they don't consider themselves a computer scientist, you don't necessarily need to be a computer scientist to succeed in this upcoming future. I fully agree. Um, and I always say mechanical engineering already has created a vocational environment. Computer science is still so new that people think about it as, as the rocket science of our days. Mm -hmm. And now rocket science is really not that, um, you know, you know what I mean? It's 
I feel like robotics and computers, the, the things that people are at, at the forefront of knowledge are usually the terms that people, I don't want to discredit the rocket scientists. Um, I, you, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. But it was the, it was yeah, the so, reach. That was always the intellectual reach. Uh, yeah, I profession. think shifting. Yeah. And people can really, um, it's a becoming a vocational thing to deal with computers and, play with uh, 3D printers as much as it was to play with cars um, and, you know, open the hood and look and then ask friends, hey, how do I fix this? Mm-hmm. Um, I want I don't want to bring it into the shop. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It sounds like the real key is, as you just said, Nicholas, uh, stay curious. Stay curious and embrace education because this is going to be a kind of a continuous learning process along the way. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Carell is his name, assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and a uh, wonderful article. You, you really ought to uh, be thinking about your own kids and how you keep them curious and keep them moving forward with this uh, automated world that's coming up. You know, we may not have a day very soon where we have Rosie the robot like the Jetsons had, but and apparently it may not be something we all want because we're not pushing it very hard, are we? We're just not personally looking for that assistant yet. But uh, stick with us, helping you see the good in the world and prepare to be that good for that automated future. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're going to take a little uh, jump to the future here because we, we talk about robotics, and he made a really great point that do would you want a robotic dishwasher, and how much would you really pay for it? And in my head, I'm like, when I'm thinking robotics, dishwashing's not the thing I'm going for. Really? I, I just want, I mean, there, there's a lot of other things I'd rather have automated. Weeding. Oh, yeah. At our house, weeding. Diaper changing? Yeah, I don't know that I want a robot changing my humans. <laughs> I just want my dishwasher to be quiet. Ours really? is kind of loud. We need a new one. You know what? Like, you turn it on, and if the TV's on in the room, you're just like, turn it up. And then it's just so loud in the room. And You know what? Our dishwashers eat a lot. Well, there's that. They're annoying. They fight. My Because I was uh, down because of my surgery, I didn't go to church this Sunday. Mm. I did not... Oh, come on. I know. And so my wife sent a video of my boys at church fighting, like literally throwing each other against the wall. Nice. It was. And she recorded it. Was, it. it was unsettling. And so I, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to get a hold of that video and I'm going to post it on our Twitter feed. This is what my boys are doing at church. I mean, literally, one of my sons was throwing the other son against the wall. They're all dressed up, suit and tie kind of thing. Right. And just pounding on each other. Is it to the point where mom just can't jump into the middle of that? Yeah, she just was filming it like, look look at this. Mm. Yeah. This is why I need you here to. There was a point where my mom kids. just sort of gave up because, yeah. you know, her sons are bigger than she, you know, and her actually trying to physically stop something was just yeah. not going to happen. So boys will be boys. Yeah. I threw my brother against the wall one time and then I got out of there as fast as I could. Wow. I had my, I found my window of opportunity. You took, took him it, out. And then I just. Took off running. Were you afraid of your mom, your dad, or your oh, brother? No. no. He's, you know, almost four years older than yeah. me. So, so you, dodge, you, you dodge get your bullet. sucker punch in and then Sorry. run. Dodge the bullet. 
Good. A little advice for all of you. Get your sucker punch in and run. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. Next hour, we're talking about weightlifting. It's really good for you. It's ridiculously good for you. Stick with us. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. The gang's all here. Jeffrey's on on the keyboard. Uh, Vocals today by Terry South. (laughs) Wow. The whole gang. Palakiko will be playing the he'll be sleeping in the next studio pretty soon yeah. the other day he monday he passed out in there no, it was really we're, embarrassing we're calling it passed out yeah yeah you could have like sat there and like thrown things in his mouth he was just well next time let me know that it was well you were you know recovering oh, from your was, stab wounds yeah by the way i do accept tips oh listen to him play mm. just loves tickling the ivories Speaking of ivories um, and ivory tickling, if you want a really great activity, hmm. go. Have you heard of YouTube? Occasionally, uh, yes. I go to YouTube mm-hmm. and look up best street performers. This is oh. you, you two, or YouTube? YouTube. Okay, got it. But there was, I did see a street performance of you two on Jimmy Fallon's show yes. in a subway that I did not know existed. Yeah, where they just dressed up like a bunch of cowboys. Looking like street performers, and then all of a sudden, there's a huge thing going on—a huge concert with you two in Subway. Of course, they're blocking everyone else that they're trying to yeah. either to work or home from but work. Who or cares? Whatever. It's you two, and right. it's a free three-song concert. Not, I think unless you don't three. like you two, and you're trying to get home or whatever. Like, get out of here! <laughs> See, if I had a lot of money or I was really famous like that, those are the types of things that I would really enjoy doing. You know what you need? Hmm. You need your gallbladder out. It oh. gives you nothing but time. Did you have quite the audience in your hospital room? Yes. No. I, see. I didn't because uh, I didn't have a hospital room, really. You, you just outpatient. did it in the no, back outpatient. of a van or something? They just stabbed me four times. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> Suck. Gone. Sent me home. Hmm. It's in the Walmart parking lot, and there was a van. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the back of a little SUV. <laughs> With some doctor from a foreign country that I did not know existed. Excellent. Um, Anyway, doing well. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about why weight training is ridiculously good for you. Ridiculously. And it sounds like even that title sounds like we're going to have like some trainer with really tight yoga pants coming in talking to us. But no. Or it's by Derek Zoolander. (laughs) It's ridiculously good for you. Maybe it, maybe that's what he was playing on. But our guest is going to blow, I think, our minds on how important it is that you lift weights. Terry already lifts weights, as does his wife. Kelly's a weightlifter. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. No, it doesn't. She's not a weightlifter, but she lifts weights. She's, in, she's healthy and incredibly – my wife is incredibly fit. Cardiovascular workouts, she's really great, except we don't lift weights. When we're at the gym, I try out pickup lines on her. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah throw, give us one. There's these videos that do like – they're gym pickup lines and a guy will walk over and say something ridiculous. I always walk over and I go, 
so uh, how much you lift? You know, that kind of stuff. And she just rolls her eyes. Wow. Nice. Yeah. But I always do it when she's like, you know, there's like a group. There's like yeah. a, several people and they always overhear just to yeah. hear that to I'm see. a moron. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she just rolls her eyes. And it's that little endearing moment you know, you, that you, strengthens the relationship. I think that's really neat. Yeah. Um, I, I've never been to the gym with my wife. Yeah. Uh, we have, but not seriously. So I don't do that, but I'll like, like put my zipper down and in an embarrassing kind of situation, and then I'll go over and talk to her. Oh, okay. And that's kind of like the same thing. Yeah, people look at like, what? Who's that guy? Yeah. No, it, it, it's something we do together. Yeah. It's something we made a goal several years ago that we were going to do this Super because cool. uh, we were out of shape. Well, now look or at you. more out of shape. I'm only sort of out of shape now. You're out of shape? A little bit. Sheesh. What are we, Jeff? I have a shape. <laughs> Mama says that's I'm a all pear. I, that's all I'll <laughs> say about when I don't, that. When I don't feel like I'm lumbering around, yeah. then maybe I'll be in shape. But Do you know what? And this is, I think, the key to all of this. I don't like feeling weak. So, But in order to get healthy, you have to... Push yourself to exhaustion and weakness. Yeah. You have to admit those legs are scrawny and translucent. It is empowering to find your limit. Yeah. To push yourself to a point where you're just going to collapse. And actually sometimes do collapse. Yeah. But you're, you're going to collapse on the front end or the back end anyway. But it's what happens in between the collapses that matters. And just as a, a very wise man once said... Why do we fall? Oh, boy. So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. There you go. That got weird. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) It's the music. These are the points that you don't get from other radio shows because we're trying to make your life better. One lift at a time. Today, by the way, we'll also be addressing um, a crazy phenomenon from space where a worm went to space, came back with two heads. Totally terrifying. Whoa. One worm, one trip to space, comes back, two heads. It grew another head. Two heads are better than one. Is it? Really? So if we sent you to space and you came back with two heads, seems problematic. How do you explain that to your wife? Twice the thinking. Yeah, I still don't think she'll like it. Plus, we'll talk about uh, plane passenger (laughs) that... uh, he was something woke him from his slumber. You won't believe what it was. Just a curious, uh, just a curious little kid. Uh, also, um, got another boy. Another this one's epic. Another snake story. Another movie. How many movies can one make about snakes? It's a there franchise. Are a lot, there are a lot of snakes. A, fill in the blank. It's like it's 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 Mad Libs with. Yeah. Snakes. You yeah. know that, that book series, if you give a mouse a, or if you give a, and then fill in the blanks. Because it's always like if you give a, a moose a muffin or a mouse a cookie oh, yeah. or a pig a pancake. Right. If you give a snake a bed. Man a fish. And snakes are in a lot of different places. Places you would never imagine. Uh, it's giving me the chills. All right. right, let's. Uh, we'll get to all that straight ahead. But first, 
We must address the current news. What's going on, Terry? A Cook County grand jury indicted three veteran Chicago police officers Tuesday on charges of conspiracy, official misconduct, and obstruction of justice, accusing officers of working together to cover up for their colleague who shot and killed 17-year-old Laquan McDonald in 2014. The first police report stated that officers David March, Joseph Walsh, and Thomas Gaffney were victims of McDonald as he assaulted them before Officer Jason Van Dyke came to intervene. McDonald lunged towards him with a knife, and that's when Van Dyke shot him 16 times, the report said. Mm. One year later, dash cam footage of the incident was released that completely refuted the report showing Van Dyke shooting McDonald as he walked away. If you remember the video. Yeah, totally. Van Dyke has been charged with first-degree murder and pled not guilty to the charges. But you watch the video, guy's walking away, and you shoot him 16 times. Boy. Not good. Not good. Other news, Walmart reportedly warning some tech companies that if they want Walmart's business, they can't run application on Amazon's cloud platform, Amazon Web Services, some tech companies told the Wall Street Journal. Walmart uses some tech vendors' cloud applications that run on Amazon uh, Web Services, a Walmart spokesman said, though he declined to say which apps and for how many. But Walmart did acknowledge instances where the retailer is pushing for uh, AWS alternatives. He was our vendors have a choice of using any cloud provider that meets their needs if their customers and their customers' needs. It shouldn't be a big surprise that there are cases in which we'd prefer our most sensitive data isn't sitting on a competitor's platform. Now, the guy that runs Amazon Web Services says, we don't have a retail, you know, we're not in this retail fight between you and Amazon.com. We're right. part of that whole Amazon company, but we're yeah. not, it's not the same thing. It's, they're different, you know, uh, arms of this sort of bigger entity of Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, but Walmart seems to be stepping up the fight after Amazon made their purchase of uh, uh, Whole Foods last week. Yeah. Now Amazon and now Walmart's pushing back, saying, "Don't use their web services." And that, just, now you're that's a that's an ugly war. Yeah, we're just trying to fight, and it doesn't really. It's kind of a a different area of the company they're trying to fight against, but it's just kind of interesting they make that announcement. Yeah, the next week, roughly three point three million years after ancient humanoids invented the earliest known tools, mankind is on the cusp of perfecting sophisticated <gasps> self-driving technology. Yes, that has a potential to revolutionize transportation as we know it. There is one problem, though. What kangaroos? Oh, Volvo's new self-driving technology uses a large animal detection system to prevent its S90 and XC90 car models from plowing into deer or moose while on the go. But during tests in Australia, researchers realized the technology is completely befuddled by the hops of kangaroos. <laughs> to fix the problem, Volvo needed to first start identifying the roo, explained the company spokesperson. That would make sense seeing that the company initially developed its large animal detection software by dodging moose in Sweden. Uh, I'd rather dodge a moose than see the roo. Determined, Volvo has spent the last 18 months in Australia teaching the software not to hit kangaroos. The company needs to get exactly right. After all, there are more than 16,000 roo collisions a year in Australia. Are there really? 16,000 kangaroos are hit by cars and trucks. Boy, I didn't think about... There's that whole side of this. You have to be protected from the, you know, stray kangaroo popping out. Yeah. They can't predict the animal just jumping out. But of the I don't know. Of the road. I just have a feeling that it's not a big problem in Philadelphia. No, but Australia. If you want to sell a car in Australia, yeah. But but think of the benefit. That's the neat thing. You, they solve that problem in Australia, and it will only benefit your life in, you know. Right. You don't have to worry about kangaroos. 
and or, or like that or, little kid that j- jumps well, really yeah. strange, you know, that right. kid. So, and finally, scientists may have uncovered a way to, tr- to track the ever-evolving flu virus buried in 10-year-old mucus. Come again? In an effort to understand how the flu virus rapidly mutates, which leaves scientists constantly scrambling to come up with a new flu vaccine every single year, researchers decided to study four cancer patients' mucus, which had been collected a decade ago and frozen. <laughs> because cancer patients tend to come down with the flu for a longer period of time than healthy individuals, the scientists had a longer window of time to observe the mutating virus. Mm. In healthy humans, the immune system typically eradicates the flu virus before it undergoes too much of a mutation, making it harder to track uh, what's coming next in the evolution of the flu. Whereas yeah. with the cancer patient, it's around longer so they can look at it and study it. Um, the continued study of mutations in patients with uh, drawn-out flu in- infections will help scientists get a step ahead on next year's flu. Aren't you glad but they're using... that you have your job? Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of gross. Would you rather have the mucus job or the uh, the guy going down in the uh, sewers? Remember that? Remember yeah. The, we talk a lot about fat The birds. Indonesian fat. Uh, yeah. I'd rather be the Indonesian... Uh, I don't know. Because he, he literally dives into the sewers of Indonesia. Yeah. Or the guys in London. Uh, or the fat bird guy. I, I'd probably rather do the fat bird because it's not fluid. Anyway, that's this is a very gross discussion. Yes. But um, thank heaven somebody's willing to dive into the flu germ. Someone has to do it. Yeah, but they're, just the idea that you use this the cancer patient because it lasts longer, gives us better insight, mm-hmm. hopefully. just Can we just find the, clue, or the, the cure to the flu finally? Yeah. No more shots. When was the last time you guys were asleep on an airplane? The last time I flew. Really? Pretty much every time. Just so what happens, out. just imagine this, that you all of a sudden you're asleep and you wake up and you you look over. This is a flight from South Vietnam to North Vietnam. And when you wake up from a nap, there's this stinging sensation that you feel on your leg. Okay? It just burns. And you look down, and there is a, a little boy uh, reaching through the gap between the chair in the front and the window, I guess. And this little boy is yanking, <laughs> pulling on the hair on your leg. Hmm. He's just just yanking the kinda, hairs out of your st- leg. <laughs> yanking the hairs out of your leg. He said, "I looked and I could see this kid pulling my leg hairs." I immediately started recording because the situation seemed so absurd, Mr. Ochoa said. Apparently, the young or curious Vietnamese boy was um, sitting in a row in front of Mr. Ochoa, and he had never seen so much leg hair in his life. So he took it upon himself to go investigate. He just – apparently, they in the Koreas – in fact, we probably ought to ask Spencer Linton this, see if he had a, this happened to him while he was living in South Korea – Apparently, there's not a lot of leg hair there. Oh, Kelly Clarkson! <laughs> and the guy yelled, oh, Kelly Clarkson, every time he'd pull his leg hair, apparently. <laughs> anyway, what a weird, weird, weird story. Um, okay, now, just as we go to our break here, we got to talk about this woman that was bitten by a venomous snake. Um, she was in her bed, a, a cute little girl, Christy Kelly, had a deep fear of being bitten 
by a snake. And that made what happened the morning, May 30th, all the more horrible. Christy, a 25 or a 24-year-old yoga instructor. That's a big little girl. Yeah. I don't know why it said that. <laughs> oh, as a little girl, she, she always was afraid of I being see. bitten by a snake. And now as a 24-year-old yoga instructor in uh, Spring, Silver Spring, Maryland, she was awoken from slumber around 6 a.m., by a searing pain in the webbing between the thumb and the forefinger of her left hand. I leapt out of my bed, she said, turned on my light, and Christy told me on the phone from her bed at the Holy Cross Hospital, there was a huge snake in my bed. Huge is a relative term, of course. Anacondas can grow up to 18 feet, um, as can pythons. But the snake in Christy's bed was a copperhead snake, poisonous which seldom get longer than three feet, but it was big. It was big. It had bitten Christy twice, it turned out. It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced, she said. Christy's screams woke her family, and her mom and her dad ran down from the basement, uh, ran down to the basement to help her. There was Christy, her hands already starting to swell from the venom, and there was the snake still in her bed while Christy's father, Tom, dispatched the snake with, a, by the way, a curtain rod that he found. <laughs> Uh, her mother, Debbie, bundled her in the car and sped away to the Holy Cross Hospital. Wow. Is, can you think Ugh. of anything more terrifying than that? Maybe, but that's still pretty terrifying. But it seems like the makings of a great movie. Yeah. In fact, what they're making one, and no. there's already a trailer for it. Get out of here. Are you ready for this? Let's listen to the trailer and go to break. From the director of Snakes in a Car. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Snakes in a Toilet. I have had it with these mother-scaring snakes in these fresh and shiny toilets. And babies in a lobby. I have had it with these mothers in distress delivering their small and fragile babies on my squeaky clean floors. Comes the sequel you didn't see coming. Looks like the victim suffered swelling in her left hand due to a couple of snake bites. What do you say, Chief? In situations like these, there's only one thing to say. I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. Uh, anything else you want to say, Chief? Oh, yeah. Had it with these mother biting snakes and these reasonably comfortable beds. Snakes in a bed. Rest in peace. You know, in our regular exercise, workouts, resistance, or weight training is sometimes thought of uh, left best to the professionals, right? In reality, this type of training has many benefits, especially as our bodies age. As we grow older, our bones tend to become less dense and our ligaments uh, tend to become weaker. So strength training encounters these effects, uh, counters these effects and can have more physical and emotional benefits than we may have ever imagined Using the weights uh, may be a, a really strong uh, tool to help us live healthier, happier lives. Here to talk about it is Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. He's an assistant professor in the exercise department of Lehman College. Brad, thank you so much for your time being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I had no idea 
uh, all of the positive imp- uh, the positive benefits of weight training. I mean, I you always heard. I always heard. I guess because my father in law is a cardiologist of the the need for cardiovascular workout, but really, weight training may be easily just as important. Yeah, uh, and it's really been over the past couple of decades where the bulk of the research into the topic has come into play. And certainly it had been, resistance training had been studied prior to that, but it was generally more from a uh, performance standpoint with athletics. And uh, it's just amazing the uh, scope and uh, and breadth of benefits that are uh, conveyed by resistance training. And in my humble opinion, they're they out. Uh, far surpassed that of aerobic training. Certainly not saying that aerobic training is beneficial, yeah. and there is a synergistic benefit to doing both. But I always say, if you if you can only do one, which is almost never the case, but if, if you had to choose, resistance training will provide a, a greater scope of benefits. Yeah. Do you, and talk about why. I mean, well, maybe first tell me this because when I look at weight training. It it tends to psych me out more. It um, you, I just imagine going to a workout space and standing next to some dude that just is puffed up and has no neck, and me feeling like a scrawny little puke. Um, it, it is. It doesn't need to be that complicated, does it? And and that's really not what you're talking about. Exactly, and, and that is the, the stereotype uh, of strength training that's been uh, conveyed in the media generally. But uh, first of all, when we talk about weightlifting, it's, it's really resistance training. And resistance training is anything that provides, the name applies, a resistance. That can be things like push-ups, uh, using your body weight. It can be using bands, uh, resistance bands. It can be using cables, machines, and, of course, free weights, which is the most common Thing that people think of, so barbells and dumbbells, but it really encompasses uh, pushing your body against a resistance, providing a resistant, resistant stimulus to your body, and uh, that does not also have to be with heavy weights. There's been a lot of research, including that from our own lab, uh, my lab here in New York, that has shown that even lifting very light weights, provided you do it with a lot of intensity of effort, that the effort is high, can get uh, roughly similar results to that of lifting heavy. Hmm. So, so blow up more of the myths because that's one I didn't know. I didn't. I mean, when I look at these little three pound weights, I just think, boy, that's lazy. But the reality is, you're saying you can use a three pound weight, and if you have a, a high effort, um, it could basically show the same benefit. Yeah. So that's somewhat relative when you talk about a three pound weight. If you can lift, let's say you're doing a bench press and using a three pound weight, when you can lift a hundred pounds. You wouldn't be able to to provide that effort. It would be able to perform 200 repetitions with it, and that kind of goes beyond the benefit. But when I'm talking a, a light weight, that's something rather than being able to get, let's say, five repetitions on that you can get maybe 20 or 30. And we've shown we we actually have carried out controlled research where resistance trained subjects have uh, pushed their body with 30 repetitions in a set, and that that weight is relatively light. So that would be if they can lift. 100 pounds, they're only lifting 30 pounds, uh, and they uh, they got roughly similar muscle growth to that of lifting much heavier weights. Hmm. What are some other benefits uh, when, when you think about um, the age f- for those that are aging? What other benefits yeah. are there to resistance training? 
Yeah, so one of the real um, issues with aging is something called sarcopenia, which is the age-related loss of muscle tissue. So after about the age of 30 to 35, you begin to start losing muscle mass, your fundamental mass, if you do not perform resistive exercise. So if you perform resistive exercise, you can maintain muscle into your 60s, 70s, and even 80s. But for the vast majority of people, only about uh, 20% of the population regularly lifts weight. And even within those, most many of them don't do it in a manner consistently to, uh, to provide ongoing benefits. They do it somewhat haphazardly. But for the vast majority of the population, they're going to start losing their fundamental muscle mass. By the time they reach 50 to 60, that will result in functional decrements, meaning they're not able to carry out tasks in the same way that they were earlier in life. And by the time they reach the sixth, seventh, eighth decades of life, that starts to magnify. You start to lose uh, muscle at an exponential rate. And the primary reason that people go into nursing homes, they lose their functional independence, mm. uh, is because of this age-related loss of muscle, the sarcopenia. And again, the only way to counteract that is through resistive exercise. I, I will say that uh, if we can, I, I will make the bold statement that if everyone lifted weights, we would have a, uh, we, not only a more functional society, but we would have a huge benefit on the costs of, of medical care because the costs of, of functional and of dysfunction, physical dysfunction, and the need to then have someone tend to you uh, is huge, both from an economic standpoint and also certainly from a mental standpoint. And nothing is worse for an elderly person than not being able to do things without help. Yeah, I remember my grandma, for example, um, <laughs> that's crazy, raking her shag carpet. Uh, because, you know, she took care of her house. She cleaned like crazy. And once a week, she'd rake her carpet. And I remember thinking, how crazy is that? We don't rake our carpet at our house. But all, all of a sudden, I'm realizing just keeping your house clean 50 years ago took a workout with a lot of resistance and moving uh, and having to hit or take out your rugs and wash your windows. And is it just the lifestyle we've moved away from resistance? Yeah, well, certainly the, uh, the computer generation uh, has facilitated or, or hastened the onset of sarcopenia. So when you are active, like you said, things like raking is a form of resistance. Now, that is not going to fully stave off sarcopenia, but it certainly will attenuate it. It will slow down that process. So there's gradations. It's not either resistive training or not resistive training, but it's kind of on a spectrum of what you're doing. And there's no question that uh, the more sedentary you are, the more you sit, the more you lie down, the greater the uh, loss of muscle is going to be, the more accelerated it will be, and the greater the effects on physical dysfunction that you'll have. Mm. What are some other uh, benefits as far as – because I always hear, too, that it's about your core. you got to strengthen your core. Um, maybe talk about the core and what is – what's so important about strengthening the core? Well, that's somewhat of a, I don't want to say a misrepresentation, but the core number one is poorly defined without getting really too technical. Yeah. If you, if you ask 10 different uh, strength and conditioning professionals what the core is, you'd probably get 10 different answers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but, but what I would say is, is that the core can be strengthened. You do not have to directly work the core to strengthen the core. Many resistive exercises, particularly if you're doing these multi-joint exercises in, in three-dimensional space, such as free weights, machines, bands, uh, you will get core strengthening. 
uh, from that, meaning that you'll, you'll strengthen the muscles, the abdominal muscles, the back muscles. And certainly, uh, on a, just on a general level, lower back pain is, is one of the most debilitating uh, things that happen to people, or the vast majority of people over their lifespan will get it, uh, get some form of, of lower back pain, and, uh, and even upper back pain as well. And resistive training will uh, help to prevent that, assuming you're doing it properly. <laughs> you can also, if you're doing it improperly, you can actually get back problems. So <laughs> I do want to emphasize that it has to be done properly, and I always encourage people before they start to make sure they're educated in what they're doing. Just going to the gym and figuring things out is generally not a good way. So we either get a book, uh, watch videos, you can get a personal trainer if, if that uh, works with your budget, uh, but certainly educate yourself. It's not simply like getting on a treadmill or going out for a walk. There are biomechanical issues involved that need to be understood when you're going to um, enter into a program as well as a program design, how you, uh, which exercises to do, how you do them, how you go about doing them. Those are all very important aspects that need to be considered. Can you, um, I mean, really, when I think of this uh, weight training or resistance training, to me, the, the key is this is about muscle, right? This is about strengthening muscle and, I guess, the the uh, the tendons that attach it to our bodies. Um, but as we strengthen muscle, we actually are going to – because our muscle uses glucose, sugar, and ma- you know manages our energy, I guess, our metabolism. Talk about what we're doing as we're actually working the muscles and, and what, other, what other benefits happen to us chemically – uh, and, and health benefits come when our muscles are engaged. Yeah, g- great point. And I, I certainly want to emphasize this, that it's, it's beyond people think about strengthening muscle from a physical standpoint, physical function, which I just outlined, and that certainly is a major issue. But the, it goes so far beyond that. And the things that happen chemically with inside your body and, uh, and from a molecular standpoint are also really important to understand and uh, you brought up glucose, a really great point. So first of all, adding more muscle. The muscle is the primary point of glucose storage, and it's called glycogen. When sugars are stored, they're stored in the muscle. Well, we know that diabetes and insulin resistance uh, causes a lot of issues. It can be not only uh, serious but fatal if uh, taken to extreme. So uh, the Adding muscle, number one, increases your ability to store the glucose, which, again, will help to uh, reduce the onset of diabetes or prediabetes. And just as importantly, if not more so, there are things called glucose transporters that um, originate within muscles, they, as well as insulin receptors at the muscle. So resistance training itself, besides increasing the muscle, they help to wake up these uh, insulin um, uh, these glucose transporters as well as the uh, insulin receptors at the muscle level, and that helps to bring glucose. It helps to sensitize the muscle to glucose. So you can have more muscle, but if the glucose can't get into the muscle because you're not insulin sensitive, there are issues, of course, mm. with, the, with glucose disposal, and then you can, that can lead to diabetes. So it's not only that you get greater ability to store glucose, but it facilitates the storage of glucose by waking up these mechanisms that cause the storage, and thus there's uh, studies that have clearly shown an improved ability to store glucose and thus reduced uh, insulin insensitivity and, and reduction in diabetes. We also have studies out of our lab, really interesting work, 
uh, one of the biggest health issues um, that we're now starting to understand is that chronic in, uh, inflammatory, chronic inflammation is a, hastens the onset of a lot of uh, real disease states, including cardiovascular disease and cancers. Hmm. And uh, we have studies that have shown that resistance training actually improves cellular health. So we, we have these sophisticated tests that we do called the bioelectrical impedance spectroscopy, which can actually look at the cellular health, that it enhances the health and reduces the chronic inflammatory response within the body uh, and thus basically makes you healthier overall. Yeah. but I didn't think of that. I mean, but all of these diabetes type 1, type 2 issues – that are um, that are taking off. I guess circulation would be a part of that. I I, I keep hearing about inflammation and chronic inflammation. Can can you just give us some insight into what is what is that? Is that just inflammation of arteries of your body? Of what's inflamed? Well, it, it's an overall state, so it has to do with certain proteins in the body that call, cause an overall inflammatory response. So this is the response, and that can act at different tissues but you can actually measure the inflammation within the body. It's really, we're looking at whole body inflammation here. Um, and that can be at, at a variety of tissues. So that's, it's really an altered immune response. Your immune system is uh, designed to help uh, obviously fight diseases, but when there's alterations uh, in the immune response, that causes this buildup. And by the way, one of the things that's responsible for at least that's been shown to have negative effects on this response, is fat cells. And fat cells actually, contrary to popular belief, they're not just these inert cells that don't do anything. They actually secrete uh, these pro-inflammatory, so, so it has to do with these pro-inflammatory molecules that are uh, secreted, and that's what we're looking at when we're looking at the inflammatory response, hmm. the buildup of these, uh, these molecules. No, and it makes sense too. I mean, it's there's just so much going on, and to know that there's something as simple as, I mean, easily said, uh, something as simple as resistance training can help. Holy cow! Let's get on it. Let's take a break. Come back. Continue with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld as we discuss uh, resistance training. It's ridiculously good for you. That's the title of his article: Why training uh, weight training is ridiculously good for you. We're learning, folks. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about why weight training or resistance training is ridiculously good for you. Uh, the article was written by Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. And Brad um, is, he's, by the way, a fitness guru, but really he's an assistant professor of exercise in the department uh, at the exercise department at Lehman College. Uh, he also, um, his research focuses on muscular adaptations and um He's teaching us the power of weight training or resistance training. Any, I guess, resistance is beneficial. Is that right, Brad? It is. I just want to point out, too, this was not my article. I was interviewed by Time Magazine for this article. Yeah. So the article came out in Time Magazine. I do want to, don't want to take credit for the article. And really, but you make – part of this, I think, is, is so um, interesting. Like, I didn't know – 
I didn't know at what point it's beneficial. So if I'm if I pick up a can of tomatoes um, and I'm using that to work out, whether I'm actually intending to work out or not, there is a benefit happening to my body by just simply the resistance. Um, mm-hmm. But the point I didn't know is when you work out, you don't need to even be um, – you don't need to be incredibly – you don't need to have an incredibly perfect workout. You just need to work out enough to kind of exhaust your muscle. Yeah, so it, certainly it's going to depend upon what your ultimate goals are. But um, lifting anything, like I said, you can, you can rake your carpet and you can achieve some benefits. There is some resistance there that is not going to be enough to fully stave off the aging effects, but it will – Somewhat. So it's, again, on a continuum. Yeah. If you want to really ha- make a substantial impact and have uh, the best functional outcomes, you need to push your muscles beyond their consistently beyond their present capacity, meaning that you're going to have to lift to the point where you, you're not going to be able to get one or two more reps. You know, you're going to have to push yourself close to the point of what's called muscular fatigue or muscle failure. Uh, how close you get to muscle failure, again, somewhat will depend upon your ultimate goals. But, yeah, simply just lifting anything will be better than lifting nothing. And if you're a bricklayer who's constantly lifting bricks up or, let's say, a UPS worker who lifts packages all day, you will not achieve the – or you will not lose as much muscle over time as those who have a desk job. Hmm. And you uh, – that's, that's a great benefit because – so if you're a senior and um, you keep pushing yourself to muscle fatigue, you can do that at your level – at your speed, and so this is something you can do forever. That's correct, and you can do it, as I, we talked about earlier, across a wide spectrum of, of loads. So you can do it with heavy weights, moderate weights, light weights. As long as you are pushing your body, you're going to achieve substantial benefits. Now, there, I don't want to make it seem like there's no differences between lifting heavy weights versus light weights, yeah. but that more gets into what if you're a bodybuilder or a, an athlete, uh, power lifter, those are the ones where it's going to have a lot more of a tangible effect on from a practical standpoint. For the vast majority of the general public, it really is not going to matter much whether the weights are relative, it's all relative as we, we spoke about, but relatively heavy, moderate or light, as long as you push your body. And two, the, this I guess helps with other aging issues like osteoporosis and yeah. just posture issues. And, and that's a, another really important point. So as I mentioned, the Certainly aerobic exercise is important, but aerobic exercise is primarily uh, specific to the cardiovascular system, and it's going to have effects on glucose disposal and some of the other things we talked about, but it is not going to have the breadth of effects, number one, on increasing muscle mass uh, to enhance the uh, storage capacity, your functional capacity, your posture, as you mentioned, and yeah, from a bone standpoint, a really important point that uh, osteoporosis is just like you lose muscle over time, you also lose bone, and it's particularly uh, evident in women. So 80% of the cases of, of severe bone loss, which is osteoporosis, uh, the term osteoporosis literally means porous bone. So the bone's ultimately hollow from the inside out. Uh, and with 80% of these cases are women. When women go through menopause, they lose estrogen. Well, estrogen is osteogenic, meaning it builds muscle. When you lose estrogen, when women lose estrogen, they, they have a, a much greater, a, um, 
substantially enhance loss of bone during that period. So bone loss accelerates greatly during menopause and stays that way after. Uh, resistance training directly strengthens bone to an extent that aerobic exercise cannot do. Hmm. Uh, there are certain, there are mild benefits to aerobic training depending upon how it's carried out. Like running will have more of a benefit on the lower extremities, certainly than cycling. But bottom line is you're not going to get anywhere near the benefits with aerobic training as you do with resistance training on strengthening bone and thus staving off osteoporosis. Mm. And and again, too, so much of this is so chemical, uh, but the mental health benefits as well. Yeah, and, and both aerobic exercises have been shown to have uh, benefits on, on mental health, but yep, uh, resistance training right up there. That uh, it, First of all, when you get more strong and you're, uh, you feel healthier, your body looks better, that in itself is going to have an effect on your mental health. And right. You feel good is the old axiom. But there are also neurochemicals that are uh, that are um, released when you're training and, and after training that just make you feel better about yourself. And, and by the way, on the, on the opposite side, as we spoke about earlier, the loss of physical function is extremely debilitating mentally. Um, my dad, I can give you, my dad was a cardiologist and Unfortunately, never participated in weight training until he got older, and I finally convinced him, but it was a little too late, and he uh, started losing his physical function, his ability to do what he wanted to do. Ultimately, he lost his driver's license because he couldn't uh, function properly, yeah. and he went into severe depression because of it uh, in his later stages of his life. Uh, really had a, I saw the profound effect that it had, and it, it's really powerful. And like I said, resistance training is, is the key towards staving that off. What would you advice do you give us to, to those that are now motivated saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to introduce more resistance into my life, more resistance training into my life. Wh- where do we begin and, and what would be a pretty basic, uh, strong start? Okay. Yeah, the first thing I'd say is you need to commit a minimum of two days a week, uh, which certainly should be in the abilities of anyone. Uh, so two days a week, and it should be on non-consecutive days if possible, so Monday, Wednesday, uh, Monday, Thursday, etc. But don't do it two days in a row. Uh, you should uh, train your entire body. So like one exercise for your shoulders, your back, your chest, your thighs, your calves, and your, your abdominal, uh, your, what they might call the core region. So it really it's not overly uh, complicated. And so a minimum, this is just a very basic routine. You don't, even one set per exercise can get you really good results. If you can do more, two to three sets per exercise, that would be of greater benefit. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, like I said at the beginning, just make sure you know what you're doing because doing uh, weight training improperly, resistance training can lead to injury, and that, of course, not only will set you back, but a lot of times mentally scar you from wanting to do it again. Hmm. So get it right at the beginning. Make sure you understand proper form for each exercise. And really the time commitment is, is fairly minimal. You can get a good workout in, in 20 to 45 minutes, depending upon what you want to do, assuming you're just your goal is just basic health and some additional muscle and strength. Now, if you want to become a bodybuilder or a athlete, it's going to take more than that. But just from a very basic standpoint, anyone uh, can achieve really terrific health benefits from a fairly small time commitment. That's great. And again, I guess you don't even need a gym because, but you do need Correct. a plan. Correct. Yeah, you you can buy uh, small dumbbells. You can do just use body weight. There's books, uh, 
a good friend of mine, Brett Contreras, has a book on body weight training that you could just do in your home. So and there's, there's others. You can uh, look on the Internet. There's, the problem with looking on the Internet, the advice is sketchy. So you can get some yeah. really good advice and some bad advice. So just if you're going to do... If you're going to do the internet, just make sure you're you're getting the good advice and then consult with someone to find the good advice. But uh, yeah, you, you can do it at home. You can go to a gym. Some people like training at home. Certainly, the convenience factor is good. Some people get motivated by going to a gym because uh, other people are around. There are certainly classes that can be taken that involve resistance. So a lot of options. Good stuff, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Thank you so much for your time. Your great work. Again, you can look up Brad on Facebook, uh, look him up on the Internet. He's everywhere. He's on LinkedIn. But uh, great insights into uh, how to get a little more resistance training into your life and all the benefits, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, he just he's converted me. I'm going to go back to my uh, sit-up plan that I started, I think, in January. As soon as I can do a sit-up. <laughs> um, I was stabbed four times. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. Coming back, giving you more, uh, more insight, information you need to live healthier, happier lives. Welcome back. You know, it's just so amazing what can happen in science. And because I'm a doctor, not that kind, um, I was blown away by this story about what happened to a worm when they sent it to space. So you just send on a mission to International Space Station in January 2015. American researchers included some flatworms, right? The idea was to see how the normal regenerative powers of planarian worms uh, which can regenerate a head under the right conditions. And what they wanted to see is, would this worm regenerate a head? Would it grow a head in space? Hmm. I mean, it's a great question. So they sent it out to space, and then when it came back after five weeks in space, the worms returned, and some of them were different. Some spontaneously divided themselves into identical worms. Others spent more time in light than uh, the earthbound ones do. And most striking, they found out, kind of spooky of all, was one worm came back with a second head. Yeah. A form of spontaneous regeneration that researchers had never seen before. Both heads grew from a single amputated fragment. So instead of growing back one head, this one grew back Two heads. Scary. Yeah. Normal, normally flatworms uh, live in water, and they never do this. This never, ever happens. But you send them out to space for a while, and they come back growing two heads. Levin, uh, one of the researchers, says he doesn't know exactly what happened, but he theorizes that it could have been the loss of geomagnetic field, the loss of gravity, and the stress of takeoff that may have created you know, the dual-headed monster. Now, this is all very important because as so many people want to head off to space. No pun intended. Yeah. No pun intended. We got to be careful because if we have a Mars trip and then everyone comes back with two heads, we're in trouble. So. What did they do with the worm? Oh, they just put it in the garden. They didn't try to. I think they tried to kill it and. 
apparently it didn't die. Wow, it it didn't die after that? Oh, my. That sound was horrible. Yeah, apparently it didn't didn't die as easily as they thought it would. And it kept saying something like, I'll be back in in flatworm. In an Austrian accent. Yeah. I think flatworms have that Austrian accent. Anyway, little uh, little uh, scientific news for you, with light on the science, but stories still scary. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great uh, day, a great commute so far, and um, just making it the greatest day you got, you know? You only get so many of these, so you may as well carve it up nice. That's a a good thought. Turn it into something that you can use. Um, Today, by the way, we'll be talking about how to live well and spend less. Mm. I... Spend well, live less. Got it. No, 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 no. It'd be live well, spending less. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, you're gonna want to. You're gonna want to. It's gonna say who wants to live less. No, no, no. You want to live as much as you can, but not have to pay top dollar for it. Life is hard. Money is scarce. But you don't have to have everything you think you need to have. We have so much stuff at our house we're trying to get rid of, but then the back of our head says, "Well, but what if we need it?" Can you get rid of that golf cart? I'll take it off your hands. No. What golf cart? You were talking about a golf cart yesterday. Your kid's driving around on a golf oh, yeah. cart. We don't own a golf cart. Hmm. His neighbors all got it on some my neighbors, government subsidy. Yeah. So. Because we, you know, President Obama was giving incentives to buy electric cars. So all my really wealthy neighbors <laughs> just went cars. and bought golf carts so their kids could play. And now every kid in our neighborhood wants either a golf cart or a Vespa. Is that like a coffee? Uh, no, it's a scooter. Oh, okay. But what I'm making, I've decided this. I'm going to make my children, and because I, I have, I may buy a family Vespa that we can just all use. And because I think it'd be super fun to like go pick up my son on our Vespa. You, you could just say no. Well, no, but here's why I want. I mean, I've always wanted a Vespa. because it feels like there's a lot of no here, and you're yeah. just sort of compromising with the family. Well, option. but no, but here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to make them watch hours of motorcycle accidents. Which you can do on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Because they're telling me – but I know, but I won't do that. That was stupid. That was a dumb move by mm. that one guy. So I'm like, I'm going to make him watch about five hours of Vespa accidents. That's just going to make them – that's just going to desensitize them. You think? Oh, yeah. I don't think so. It's pretty, it's pretty jarring. I mean I don't know what five hours will do. But I know that 10 minutes the other day – you're going to tape their eyelids open yeah. and that kind of thing? You're going to watch okay. it. And then I'm going to have them do a report. Ooh. And then I'm going to make them take a motorcycle driving class. Yeah. And then by that time, I'm pretty much sure they'll be disincentivized. When I was in driver's ed, yeah. right, the, the, the school district brought the trailer with motorcycles in it. Ooh, cool. 
Or no, it didn't have motorcycles. You had, you, it was a trailer, so you could come and on that day learn and test and earn your whatever you needed to get a motorcycle yeah. license. And so the, the trick was you needed to bring a motorcycle. I didn't have one. My dad did. So I said, Dad, can I borrow your motorcycle? He said no. Yeah, no. Because his was actually a big, a big Harley, motorcycle. Yeah, big, and, big thing. and you're going to have a hard time holding that up. You yeah. need probably something smaller to begin with and all this stuff. So it's like I want to get a motorcycle license, but I can't get a motorcycle license without a motorcycle that I'm not allowed to get. Yeah. Hmm. That's it. See? It's perfect. Like so – That's the perfect logic to keep your kids from getting a motorcycle. See, no. the greatest part of my driver's ed class was when they put on this video that had Hulk Hogan – or oh. Hollywood Hulk. It was it was before Hollywood Hulk Hogan, yeah. and he's facing the camera and he said something like, "When I'm in the ring, I I yield to my opponent, just like when I'm on the road." And then he rips his <laughs> shirt open. You know how he used yeah, to yeah. rip those little yeah. wife beater thingies. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't like the name of that, but and yeah. it worked. I never, you know. Yeah, you I'm, never do. You, you yield, but you also always rip your shirt open, which I, I find do. weird. It's kind of a little excessive. I mean, I know HR has come in a couple times about it. Um, one of the things that we'll also be addressing today, other than, of course, talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, and I'm going to have Spencer, who lived in South Korea, address the story we talked about last hour, <laughs> last hour about uh, a young boy who had never seen so much leg hair on somebody on an airplane, so he kept pulling on the leg hair. I posted the uh, article, has a video on it. That's great. To Twitter, where the kid reaches through the seat, grabs the guy's leg hair, and yanks it out of his leg. <laughs> creepy. It, it, it seems creepy, but there's creepier things. And I just found another one. Uh, in Spain, there's a bizarre baby festival that's called the uh, Baby Jumping Festival. And they they put babies down on the road. And this guy dressed like a matador kind of comes and jumps the babies. Like evil can evil hmm. over babies. Nice pair of Adidas shoes on that jumper, yeah, too. Yeah, well, you got to have good jumpers if you're going to be jumping babies. You and these have parents, great... after the festival, lose their kids, right? The, it's, the uh, social like, services. It's crazy. Well, no, it's because it's part, of, child... the, it's part of the festival. <laughs> They're all taking photos. Everyone's yeah. happy. And he's just a happy guy. He runs around town, I guess, with a hammer. And he chases teens around, and then eventually he'll come and jump babies. This sounds like some Halloween tale. No, or... no this is this is just ancient rituals. This is like with its roots deeply, I guess, entrenched in paganism. Parents <laughs> scaring you into doing the right thing, like now go to bed, or Johnny Hammer is going to come around and yeah. get you. Yeah. In fact, there's there's. Because what it is, the guy is dressed as the devil, and he then chases people around with a hammer, and everyone runs away from him in the town. Of course, you know when someone's chasing with a hammer. I'm sorry. Are we the only country that doesn't have these overly bizarre traditions? And I mean, I guess we have mascots at sporting events, but yeah, we have we we have other traditions. Hammers. Yeah, we have. You know, we have WalMarts. We have other things. That's a good point. Hey, by the way, I was supposed to remind you that you're supposed to talk to them about something I can't remember. Yeah. And then we'll also be bringing that other thing up. But you remember. I remembered. Okay. And we may not even Oh, have Serena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We may get to that Serena Williams, John McEnroe story. But no Venus? No. Oh, Venus. Oh, Venus. He always breaks into song. 
Have you talked to him about that? No. Okay. Um, I thought you were. No, no. I, I, Wouldn't I, that be great if we had I our you got the memo? If we had our business meetings in song, that'd be great. Like sitting across from Don O'Neill, him giving us feedback um, while singing. So anyway, we'll get to all of that, right? Plus, uh, but first we got to we got to do the headlines, Terry. Gas, gas prices are projected to be lower on the 4th of July than they were on New Year's Day. That's the first time Consumer Data Tool Gas Buddy has made such a projection in the 17 years it's been around. I think the, the big story there is Gas Buddy has been around for 17 years. Gas, is it Gas Buddy or gas is it Gas Buddy? GasBuddy.com. It's where you go to find low gas prices in your oh, area. Okay, cool. You, you click on their map and they'll pop up all over town saying this is the place to go for cheap gas. Right. So uh, the projected price is also the lowest Independence Day price since twenty or 2005. And it's, it's thanks to the unexpected decline in the price of crude oil this year. Per Gas Buddy, the nationwide average on the 4th of July is expected to be $2.21 per gallon or 12 cents lower than the price of gas on January 1st. Typically, gas would cost 47 cents more per gallon on July 4th than on New Year's Day. Huh. Because of summer driving. Yeah, because of they summer markups. They use special markups. summer mix of fuel. They're right. just marking Come up prices on. to make money and we pay We're for it. We're not gullible. The 10-year average for 4th of July gas prices is $3.14 per gallon. That was according to CNBC. Considering gas prices were once predicted to come close to $3 this summer, one analyst calls this quite the dramatic turnaround. Yes. By the way, you know it's connected to Trump. Why? Because he said so. Okay, cool. Okay. Wrong. I don't know. Maybe you had some information no, I haven't seen yet. No. A Florida handyman was held in jail for three months because police mistook drywall powder for cocaine. Huh. Carlos Cash was pulled over in March for driving with his headlights off. An officer noticed white powder on Cash's seats and floorboards, and officials said a field test identified the powder as cocaine. And he goes, I know for a fact it's drywall because I'm a handyman, Cash said as he repeatedly told officers at the scene, but another substance in his car tested positive for marijuana. And Cash was on probation at the time for drug charges in 2015, so that would have been a violation of his parole. So he was tossed in jail and denied bond. Last week, after 90 days or so, Cash was released from jail when the lab test revealed none of the substances in his car were drugs. They were, in fact... Drywall. No, seriously, it's drywall. Dust. Taste it's drywall it. Dust. It's powdered milk. <laughs> so he's saying he's going public to get police to be more careful in the future. That's I don't smart. want this to happen Good. to others. Good. Good. No word on if he's going to sue. Well, I would. Ninety bet. days. You've been there for three months. Three months, and you weren't able to do any drywalling, right? Man. Lost his livelihood. Queen Elizabeth II is getting a huge pay boost this year due to help to refurbish Buckingham Palace. The Queen received $54.6 million in tax-free income from the state last year wow. as her annual sovereign grant. This year, the payment will balloon by 78% to $97 million from the state and remain elevated levels for the next 10 years as Buckingham Palace undergoes an extensive facelift. The staff has to replace wiring and pipes that are over 60 years old. Visitors, uh, visitor access will be improved, but the overall design and exterior of the 775-room London Palace will remain the same. So let me get this straight. Uh, $97 million uh, grant to, ro- to the royals. They will then improve Buckingham Palace on the inside, which only the royals can see. 
But the outside, which all the people that are paying for it can see, right. really won't see any changes. There you go. Okay. How many How many rooms again? 775. Wow. I'd love to see that on an episode of MTV's Cribs. The Queen uses this money as her expense account, covering the cost of travel, security staff, and the upkeep of royal palaces. She has other revenue for her personal expenses. In mm, fact, I'm something going on the side. <laughs> she has some real estate that they've had since 1265. Yeah, they, they sell stuff when to all the visitors that come through, like little flags little and hats, little yeah. crowns. And finally, apparently, there is a new generation in between Generation X and the Millennials. Okay. Let's. It would appear that some social scientists were really struggling to draw a clear division between the generation known as Generation X and the tech-obsessed labels thrown at millennials, so they've decided to form a micro-generation known as Xenials. Hold on. Xenials? X-E-N-N-I-A-L-S. Xenials. So it's a mix of X-Gens and millennials. Yeah. That makes sense because this is the generation that was really into that show Xena. Warrior princess. This this is with this Lucy is probably Lawless. Jeff's generation. No, essentially, when were you born, Jeff? Eighty three. Ooh, you are. This is essentially people who were born between nineteen seventy seven when I was born, yeah, and nineteen eighty three when Jeff was born, are being singled out as a group that is comfortable with both using dial up a dial up modem and ordering sushi okay. via smartphone app. They were raised in the analog world, but had no real trouble adapting to the new technology of the 21st century and looking, you know, things like looking for jobs online. Uh, it hasn't really been talked about a lot, but it's been popping up recently. Uh, University of Melbourne professor Dan Woodman, himself a Xenial, says the group has a very different set of shared experiences from the better-known generations. Yeah, okay. He goes, we hit this technology revolution before we were maybe in that fazzled period of our life with kids and no time to mm. learn anything new. We learned to consume media and came of age before there was Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, all of these things, which you still yeah. you still watch the evening news and read the paper. So we're kind of bridging the high tech and then maybe the, and the media of old. So what are the years again? 77 through 83. Some publications have used have been using the term for several years, and he brought it up. The Guardian had a quiz of, apparently a couple weeks ago where you do some true-false answers type thing, and the answers, you go, were you actually scared the first time you saw Goonies and you had or still have a Hotmail account? Wow. That's how it, you figure out if you're in that generation but or not. But it's, it's only, that's only six years. Yeah. So that's not, but it six was, years does not a generation make. It was a chaotic, they're calling it a, a micro-generation. Oh, that makes sense. We landed on, on in, the, in the fleeting sweet spot before the recession that plagued millennials launch, yet we were still young enough to uh, that when the market crashed, we hadn't invested much and didn't lose as many, as many homes or as much in retirement savings like many Gen Xers did. Right, so there's the stress right. the Gen, X, Gen Xers had, and then the millennials had. We had this different experience, and as said, Woodman says that the sweet spot has allowed Zennials to blend the pessimism of Generation X, Matt, Sorry. and the optimism of Generation Y, the millennials, our entire staff. But he warns against drawing too much from the new label. But our genera- our millennial, our staff aren't millennials, are they? Oh yeah. No, I thought they some were the are, new some aren't. Y gen. Some are, some aren't. It depends. So, oh, this is getting very it's so confusing, right? Our audience responded very well, by the way, when it was finally settled that I'm not uh, a millennial. But I think you're still. As but that far... was 15 minutes. That was a 15 minute standing ovation, by the way. Yeah, you and President Obama. Um, I think you're still officially a millennial, but you are a micro 
generation zennial. This is a whole, whole different thing. I know, but that's a whole different thing by one person. No, this is he's the he's really the first one to documented to speak on it. Others have been yeah. talking about it for several I think, years. I think what they we done, had someone on that wrote a book on this. No, but he but that guy he was the Y Gen. He didn't label it. He no, got, he's no, he's not. He's he's my our age between 1977 and 83. He was pointing out like the whole idea of you used a card catalog, yeah. and you use computers and libraries. You 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 have a both experiences. That's not X or millennial. Do you want my prediction on this? No, you're just gonna. No, my prediction is we have just totally um, destroyed the whole generation picking on generation thing. <laughs> because now it's too complicated. Because. People have a hard enough time remembering millennial, yeah. Y, and X. Zennial. Right. It's not going to happen. It's over. That we're, was 20 we've, minutes we've, of booing for you, by the way. We've just watered it down. No, it's fine. It's it was very so clear. much easier to just have the blanket, oh, he's a millennial. See, I never really thought about it until I came here. Yeah. And it's like Generation X, eh, it's kind of not really there. And then these younger yeah. you know, people, not really with them. I'm kind of in the middle. I identify parts of both, right. not all. Right, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think this. I think there's a lot of truth in what, what's being I think, spoken of. I think once you start mincing the gen, the gens, mm. they're just too complicated. But I know what Jeff is going to do for us is Jeff will be putting together a a chart or maybe like maybe some kind of service announcement. Okay. Wrong to keep your generation straight. Wrong. Don't mix the generations. So then he can explain what the millennials are. What the I think we're going to end up calling them zennials. Mm. They're not zennials, right? They're zennials because they're millennials and Z gens. Zennials. Well, not generation. There is no generation Z. It's X. Oh, so X. Has how do you, do you sort call of it zennial? Well, what would X be? What's the sound that X makes? Sh. Sound it out. This is sh sound. Seems X-ray. like it seems like we talk about this at least once a week. We should. I yeah. need to put together a little stinger for all of our Generation X segments. Exactly. Let's talk about X, baby. Okay. Wow. Um, wow, that just you workshop that some more. Yeah, let's. We'll we'll work on that. After. Yeah, don't worry about it. So coming up next, we're talking about living well, spending less, twelve secrets of a good life. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. The good life, it's something we all want, right? But does it ever seem like groceries and our bills, housework, and everyday errands get in the way? What if those everyday obstacles actually are the good life? Maybe it all comes down to how you manage them. Ruth Sukup, author of Living Well, Spending Less, 12 Secrets of the Good Life, joins us now to uh, give us some financial and life advice on how to find the good life and to do it affordably Ruth Sukup, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great to, great to have you. And this, I mean, really, we're, we're all in pursuit of the good life. How, how do you define the good life? Well, you know, to me, the good life is just simply a life rich with all the things that matter most. So faith, friends, family, creativity, hospitality, those Really, are the things that make a good life. Oh, that, I really, I agree. That's it. It's and it seems like you know a lot of those are free. 
Yeah. Well, you know, that is the interesting thing. We all we often equate the good life with physical or with material things, but the reality is that the best things in life are usually free. Oh, and yet we just still go to the store and just keep buying stuff. <laughs> and then we accumulate, yeah. don't we? And then that accumulation <laughs> creates stress and then you need a bigger house to hold all your the things you've accumulated. Absolutely. Yes, that is definitely true. And there's, you know, there's a culture that we live in that is is so steeped in consumerism that we almost don't know that we don't even know we're we're steeped in consumerism anymore. It's just become the norm. And every day, there's every moment almost there's a new message saying, "Buy more if you have this. This is going to be the thing that makes you happy. This is going to be the thing that fills you up." And and we buy into it again and again and again. Mm. What are some of your tricks? I mean, I know we've actually got kind of two things we uh, I wanted to talk about with you, Ruth. Uh, my producer, Leanna, got a hold of your book and has not yet released it. I mean, I've got it in my hand, but <laughs> it has 100,000 uh, Post-it notes from her. She's she's loving everything you're learning about kind of living the frugal kind of life. But um, also give us some ways uh, – to, to find contentment, how what what are the tricks to uh, to live well but spend less? Well, you know, really, contentment is is probably the best thing that you can do to start living a life of spending less. I think when it comes down to just learning to ha- how to love and appreciate the things that you already have instead of constantly wanting more, and that's not a change that happens in your head. It's a change that happens in your heart. So being really, truly, I guess, honest with yourself and about the the changes that need to happen. And then, you know, for me, I, it's prayer. It come, a lot of the heart changes come through prayer. Hmm. And actually being engaged with a higher power. Absolutely. In fact, there's really great... Focusing on gratitude is super important as well. Well, too, yeah, because then all of a sudden you can see what you've got. I mean, isn't it funny that a lot of times we don't even, we're not even grateful for what we got because, oh, the other one, you know, had three more features that would have been better. So maybe I right. ought to just... But instead, gratitude and that connection to the higher power. Um, we've had a lot of researchers on recently just talking about spirituality. If you can find spirituality and connection, whatever your faith system, it it will at least, it'll probably deliver joy and contentment, whatever your surroundings. Very, very true. It, and, it's, and it's so easy to forget. And, and, you know, I had a reminder of this just yesterday, um, yesterday afternoon, I was working away and, and I needed to find a file and it was a really important file. It was like a keynote file, which is like the Mac version of PowerPoint. And I was sure that I had it in my computer and I could not find that file anywhere. It was completely gone. And it was like that, that file had taken me probably, I don't know, a month to create. It was 170 slides, huge file, completely gone. And I was just, my, my heart sank. I felt sick. I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew if I had to recreate it, it was going to be hours and hours of work. And so, you know, my husband was like, calm down. It's okay. It's going to be okay. And, and you just have to, you know, work and find it. And finally, you know, after about three hours of trying to figure out something out, we finally figured out a solution. And it turns out I had duplicated that file and to edit something else. And I was able to restore it and get it back. And then I was like, and I was happy. But my husband pointed out, he's like, you don't seem very happy. 
He's like, you're, you know, your gratitude for this situation should at least equal your misery when you thought that you had lost. Yeah, (laughs) it's true, huh? You should have been ecstatic. Point, like I should be, and it was because I was completely moved on to the next thing. As soon as I got what I wanted, (laughs) instead of like stopping to feel really grateful that I had got that back, I just, you know, and so every day, sometimes you just need those people in your life who can, who can point it out. Oh yeah, that's what spouses are for, just to. Focus on the obvious. Thanks, honey. Um, it's so yeah. true, though, isn't it? Talk about you. You bring up another point about finding your sweet spot. Yes, yes. I think once you can figure out living it, how to live in the sweet spot, I think that that is one of the best ways to really find find your right place in life. You know, it's it your best life and the good life is finding the sweet spot. And I define the sweet spot as that place where your greatest passion and your greatest talents intersect. So Mm. it's where you can't wait to jump out of bed in the morning because you are doing the thing that you not only love, but that you're really good at too. And when you can find that for your life, it's an amazing thing. And that's where if you can spend, the more time you can spend in that spot, the sweet spot, the better off you'll be. Oh, yeah. Sometimes that can take a while. Uh Uh-huh. But two, what's so great about it is you're, I guess you're in flow is what we call it in psychology. You're in that state of optimal experience. You're offering your best stuff, which keeps you at this heightened sense of fulfillment. It's, it's, there's power there. Oh, very, very much so. That's cool. And I mean, a lot of people almost think they can't afford to be where their passions are or their talents are, right? Because I'm a teacher and I don't, I, I need to make more money than teaching, but if you're in your sweet spot, you'll probably love it that you'll, you know, maybe you'll get raises or maybe, you know, receive more opportunities, maybe move up the ladder faster. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think a lot of times we get scared to branch out and scared to try new things and scared scared to really pursue pursue what we could be great at because we're worried that we might fail. And so that's where, you know, we, I, I always like to encourage people that failure is not fatal at all. And in the book, I share a story uh, of how I went to law school and ended up dropping out. I, had, I thought for my whole life almost I was going to go to law school. Like ever since I was a little kid, that, that was what I was going for. And I went to college and I studied political science, all with the intention of going to law school. And I finally got there, got into a great school, was there, thought for sure, and like within the first semester, I was completely miserable, like absolutely hated it, hated everything <laughs> about it. And again, it was my husband who was the one who just saw my whole demeanor just changed in that over the course of that first semester. Like it just went from, you know, I was so excited to start to just being every day with misery. And he was the one who said, you know, you don't have to do this right? You, like, you can quit if you want to. It's okay. And I, that was like a revelation for me because I, until that moment, I would have never considered quitting. I'm not a quitter. Like, yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it even if it kills me. And he, and he said, I was like, really? That's okay. You won't be mad because he had packed up, you know, quit his job, packed up his whole life to move cross country with me so I could go to law school. And we, um, he said, yeah, no, it's okay. I think you need to, you know, this clearly isn't the right thing for you. And I ended up dropping out and quitting. And it was so scary. And yet 
and it took several years to find find my sweet spot after that. It wasn't like I quit law school and the next day I was like, okay, now I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. It, was, it took a long time. But it was, I would have never found my sweet spot had I not been brave enough to quit yeah. the path that I was on. Yeah, sometimes you got you to gotta take that hard turn, right? And, and that hard turn might lead you right to your sweet spot. And, and sometimes what we thought was our sweet spot when we were eight may not turn out to be that when we're 38. Uh, we're talking with Ruth Sukup. We're going to take a break, come back, and continue discussing her book, Living Well, Spending Less, and uh, an article she wrote um, that is titled uh, 12 Ways to Live Well and Spend Less. Interesting insights um, from Ruth Sukup. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is uh, Ruth Sukup. She's the author of the book Living Well, Spending Less, and she's walking us through 12 secrets of a good life. Um, really, we won't have time to get to all of them, but they're, these are just basic ideas, right, Ruth? But they're basic ideas that pay huge dividends and really don't cost much. Exactly. And, and and that's what I one of them one of your points was decrease your stuff to increase your joy. Our stuff costs us a lot of money, and it doesn't necessarily equal joy. That's very true. In fact, my my follow up book to Living Well, Spending Less, which just came out um, about a month and a half ago, is called Unstuffed, and it is all about decluttering your life, decluttering your home, mind, and soul, and getting rid of that. And it's sort of just you know, picks up where living well, spending less left off and really focuses on how our lives got so filled with stuff in the first place and what we can do about it. Hmm. Unstuffed. That sounds like a great idea. I've been stuffed my whole (laughs) life. Um, One of the things uh, you point out, too, is that we need to learn to realize that uh, you need to spend less money than you think you do. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I think a lot of times we spend mindlessly without even realizing what we're spending our money on. And it's, and that's not true for everyone. You know, if, if people who are really struggling and living pay, paycheck to paycheck and struggling to get by tend to actually be a lot more careful with their money. It's the people who are in the in-between zone where maybe they're not wealthy, but they're not, they're not struggling to get by. They make a healthy income and, and should be just fine. But the problem is that there's all these little everyday expenses that come up that don't seem like very much each in themselves, but when they all add up, it ends up being a big problem. One that we don't even realize until sometimes it's too late. All of a sudden we find ourselves in massive amounts of debt or just not having any money at the end of the month. (laughs) It's so true. It's like we're lulled to sleep, right? By just the hum of life that we don't actually pay attention to what we're doing. We've all we've done it driving where you'll drive for 20 minutes to get somewhere and you don't even remember driving. We kind of oh, yeah, live our whole life sure. that way. For sure, or you know, we're late we're running late in the morning and we don't have time to to make breakfast, so we stop at McDonald's or we stop at Starbucks drive-through and grab our 
$5 coffee and her $7 donut to go with it. And, you know, that's okay once in a while. But when that starts to happen every day, even though those little charges don't seem like a lot for themselves, by the end of the month, they have added up to a significant expense. Hmm. And when you, you know, multiply that times two of you and two, two adults in a family and and if you're, what your kids are doing, like it really is easy to just watch the money slip away without ever thinking about it. So one of the things that I really recommend for people who just need to kind of reset their habits and reset their budget is to go on a month-long, a month-long spending freeze. That's a good idea. And just absolutely cut out every single non-essential expense for for a whole month and see how it goes. We have a challenge at Living Well Spending Less that we that's called 31 Days of Living Well and Spending Zero. And over the years, we've actually had over 100,000 people um, take the challenge. Wow. It's one month where you just, and we've had lots of people take it more than once even, but you just, there are activities to keep you busy every single day. Um, So, you know, we focus a lot on figuring out how to make meals out of the stuff we already have on hand and keeping your, Hmm. keeping your home organized because it's, a lot of times, the reason that we go out and spend money is because we don't want to be at home because our yeah. home is a mess. So instead of cleaning the house, we go to Walmart and we buy more cleaning supplies or organizing supplies. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, there's lots of different ways where we we spend money with, that we don't need to because we are avoiding the things that we should actually be doing. That's, I mean, that's the thing. Like when I when you mentioned like stopping by at a Starbucks, for some people that is the little treat of the day, and that is the joy of their life, the moment that they have fulfilled themselves. And um, and I sit there and I think I'll, that – I'll raise my hand to that one. Do you know I, what I mean? I, <laughs> and it feels like that. But you're still just driving home and then you get home to your family and you're like, ugh, look at this kitchen. The kitchen's a mess. I'm going to just go out and get you know Chick Fil A now, and we then we pick up Chick Fil A. But it's it's almost like we're medicating with consumption instead of sitting in the space and turning the space into something that brings us the joy, or and or the relationships bring us the joy. Very very true. In fact, that's one of the secrets in living well, spending less is a clean house is a happy house, and and it probably seems a little odd to think about spending less by keeping your house clean, but. The truth is that when our house is a disaster, we avoid it as much as possible. And every time you leave your house, you're going to start spending money because there's almost or there are very few things that you can do outside of your house that don't end up costing you. Right. And and then you have to keep working to pay for that mentality when, like you said, take a month off. You've had 100,000 people do the month challenge. Mm-hmm. Did anyone die? Nobody died, and people have had the most amazing results. It's really incredible. We get letters from people who were able to fund their wedding from taking a month off. Oh, wow. We have gotten letters from people who were able to save like $5,000 an entire month or pay off their mortgage or, you know, there's just been some amazing, amazing success stories because people – you know, and it, and it really depends, again, on where you're starting from. This is not a income level problem. It ha- You know, spending issues happen whether you're making $200,000 a year or $20,000 a year. And you can be poor and be making a huge amount of money if you're not managing it well. Right. 
yeah, yeah, you're just going to dig yourself deeper in the hole. Well, uh, Ruth Sukup, I think it's a, a great thing you're after here. And the website, livingwellspendingless.com, is also a, just a great resource for everybody out there in listener land because they, they've got a million tools and, and information, the blog. They've got a wonderful resources there. We appreciate you, Ruth. Keep up the great work, and we'll have to have you back on your new book, um, Unstuffed. That sounds like a big hit. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about decluttering. Awesome. Thank you so much. Ruth Sukup, go check out the website, livingwellspendingless.com, or uh, her books, Unstuffed and Living Well, Spending Less. They're on the shelves. You can get them Barnes & Noble. Get them everywhere, folks. Good stuff. We're trying to help you, you know, organize your life and get get used to some of the easy stuff, You know, right? We don't have to just keep complicating it to distracting us from the fact that we're we're sliding. It's not working. Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Boy, that uh, that trailer just sounds terrifying. Snakes in beds. Uh, let's shoot it down to something a lot less terrifying. In fact, it warms your soul as we move down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, as they're getting ready for their big show. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew Townsend. How are you doing? Fantastic. You looked good uh, in your white pants today. Oh, thank you. You must be, um, it must be something big. You only, you only bring out the whites on the big days. Well, generally that is the case, and generally it is white pants Friday when I do that. Okay. Um, yeah, I got into my closet and just was in a hurry this morning, um, yeah. to get out to an appointment. So I, I just grabbed the white pants. I, mean, I think it's great. I think the white jacket is a little much though. And the white the wh- patent leather shoes. You were looking at the wrong person. Man. I don't think so. Mr. Don Johnson. <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't Sheila line. Yeah. Miami Vice was so awesome. Those were the days. Seriously. When you could wear a white jacket and just let your hair blow while you're in the boat. Miami Vice, the open to that show, I was just like, yeah, let's totally. go, Don totally. Johnson. I'm with you all the way. Um, I've, got a, I've, I've had a question to ask you all day. And, Jerem, I don't want to exclude you because I know that you probably had similar experiences in Brazil when you lived there on your LDS Mormon mission vacation. My mission trip. I just worked out for two years. Um, but this is, a, this is something that is unique, I think, to Spencer, and he's the only one that can really answer this. Did you hear about the guy that was on an air, a plane, <laughs> oh a flight between North Vietnam and to South Vietnam? Actually, they were going from South Vietnam to North Vietnam. What? And he woke up. I know. I didn't know they had flights there. But um, he woke up to this weird sensation of somebody pulling the hair on his oh, legs. Oh, no. Oh, no. And he looked down, and he actually filmed it. So we've got a clip of it on our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show, of this boy, this little boy pulling the hair on his legs. <laughs> Because he had never seen so much hair on a person's legs. And so I'm wondering, when you were on your LDS mission, did a lot of young men come up to try to pull the hair on your legs? Well, you know, the Korean young ones did a lot of interesting things that are socially okay over there that are definitely not okay. Not okay here. Some of which can't be mentioned. Yeah, good. And thank you for your discretion. Um, But apparently they've never seen, like, hair on legs. 
It fascinates them. That is one of the many things that fascinates uh, the Asian youngsters. Also, colored eyes. They get so geeked out. Do they really? Blue and green eyes and blonde hair. Do they want to touch them? Yeah, they do. They, they do, but they don't. Yeah, like, just don't touch like, my eyes. It, it's Yeah, I feel like it's my two-year-old. When he sees a dog, he wants to pet it. He thinks he wants mm-hmm. to pet it, mm-hmm. but then he's not really sure. So he'll like get really close and then keep moving his hand. But away right at the yeah. last minute, like that's how it is when they see your blonde hair and your eyes. And they love they love to point out that Americans have big noses. Oh, they do. Yes. Yeah. They just call it for what it is. Yeah, you've got a big like, nose. If you're, if you're overweight too, they'll be like, "Wow, you're fat." Mm. Like, thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Well, well then, that, that, that's very nice. Okay, so then let's have let's have uh, this will be fun, Jerem. You can answer this. Um, so let's say a two year old is playing with your leg hair. Do you is that something you just let go on? No. And you just smile at them lovingly. I mean, two, year, two years old is not a big deal, right? Uh, at what age do you stop the child from playing with your leg hair? Any age. So a 16-year-old. Any age. Definitely stop no, that. I don't let my kid play with my leg hair. Okay, good. <laughs> That's what, I bought her toys for this reason. That's um, good. Well, way to train her up. my leg is not one of those toys. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's I, I, great parenting advice. That's why I love to bring it to you guys because it's just you always are full of such great advice. Thank you. Jeff says you guys are full of it all the time. Um, yeah, that's probably it. Accurate. Being fill in the blank. Hey, okay, I've got to ask you. Oh, I don't. Okay, I'm going to wait on this one again till tomorrow because it is a big topic. I I'm going to save it. So, what do you think of Phil Jackson getting fired? Uh, Long dude. Probably a good thing. Uh, yeah, probably good the for the Knickerbockers. And for, and for Phil Jackson. Yeah, like break it. Let's he, be done. He's going he to get paid. He's getting either paid way. either way, I guess, right? Yeah. But yeah, he, Phil's he, not hurting. He he didn't seem as as involved as you might need to be. Well, something had to change. Involved like, or not, it, 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 the it, success wasn't there. It felt yeah. like, okay, we can either move the general manager or we can get rid of a bunch of players that he's butting heads with. Yeah. And it just seemed like the easier move was to get rid of the general manager because that's one position compared to trade Kristaps Porzingis and what are you going to do with Carmelo Anthony? Mm. I mean, it just... Right. Yeah, that's more complicated. Totally. you got, And those are some big names. Yes, they are. And you even pronounced them right. Well, I could say it confidently and you probably wouldn't know, right? It's not Carmelo. <laughs> <laughs> you were thinking Porzingis. I'm yes. thinking Carmelo. Car- <laughs> anyway, what's it's not, it's not caramello. <laughs> that is so good. Talk to me about your show. You guys are still you're still doing that today, right? Yeah, In about eight are, minutes. Rubs. Okay. Uh, what, what, what's up on the docket? We're just fascinated by this whole independence conversation. It evolved yesterday from how long do you want BYU football to be an independent team to is it paying off? In your opinion. Hmm. Because there are several different ways to look at whether or not independence has given back the investment that BYU put into it, right? Right. Are fans getting what they want out of it? Some are. Some think it's the best thing ever. Others, not so much. Why is that? How do you define the reward for taking the high risk of going independent? And I think it's mostly working. I'll tell you the ways in which I think it could be better. Oh. Uh, Athlon Sports ranks all 130 Division I coaches in college football. Where does Kalani Satake rank? It was much lower than I thought. Really? Yes, but not the lowest. Although it moved up 
He moved up 11 spots from last mm. year. Plus, men's yes. soccer coach Brandon Gilliam. What does BYU men's soccer have to do with Team USA and the World University Games coming up this summer? And men's volleyball coach Sean Olmsted on the number four signing class in the country. Yeah, we also have the second edition of 10 and 10. Jerem Jordan will break in the top 10 defenses that BYU football will face in the 2017 season. Hmm. Yep. You guys, that's a great show. Mm-hmm. It's like you've been working on it. Yeah, you know. And then there's this whole Pepsi situation with the University of Utah that we will address. We will address. Hold on. I'm not even up to speed on that. Oh, okay. Then you need to watch then the very beginning watch. of the show. Okay. Yep. At the very beginning. Is that the first segment then? Okay. I usually, Generally, I, yes. Usually that's when I'm, I'm taking my trip to fan to take my first nap. Okay. But, yeah, uh, the first segment of the show will air at approximately 10.45. Okay, I will be right there. <laughs> We're going to do there. the third segment first. Does That's, that make sense? Okay, that totally makes sense. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, no. Now I've just messed up your entire flow. <laughs> oh, well. Well, the gentlemen, of course, you're going to kill it. Knock them dead. Five minutes away, folks. Five minutes until you can just stuff yourself with BYU sports. That sounds – I know for a guy with missing his gallbladder, that sounds painful. But uh, it's not. It's going to be good stuff. Hey, um, imagine you get a water bill that is $100 million. It's a bit high. It seems a little extreme. I mean, I know this summer is hot, but come on. Where are you? In the desert? Uh, The water bill wasn't so bad, but the service charge was eye-popping. Kieran Healy of Orange County in central North Carolina got a water bill. The bill was only $189, but the service charge was um, a dollar shy of $100 million. He asked the Orange Water and Sewer Authority on Twitter uh, Wednesday if he could make installment payments. Healy posted later Wednesday the utility assured him that his bill was wrong. Those government employees can make quite a lot of money. I know. I mean, that is some serious service to be charged like that. But I have received a bill that was like $3,000 for my water. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's because we had a leak. And we Ooh. leaked thousands and thousands of gallons of water. Not but your lawn, your lawn looks oh, amazing. My lawn was just beautiful, green, plush. It was lovely. No, it leaked underground. We didn't even get the benefit. It kind of just leaked into the and was absorbed into the Mother Earth. Mother Earth was grateful. But it, it was like a 30 hundred dollar bill, and then they showed up. We didn't even know. We didn't even look at our bill. And then they showed up with a bunch of trucks and said, you've got a problem here probably. See, we, we've had that before too, but it's just usually just a matter of the meter maid. That's actually a different job. But the meter <laughs> reader yeah. uh, misreading the meter. Really? Like couldn't get the numbers straight? Right. Well, that's hard. It's just a number. You know, you add a couple of zeros. It's but it's happens. it really is. It's all in the. It's all in how you put it. Did you hear this new research about uh, if you want to get somebody to eat a vegetable, you've got to change the name of the vegetable? Oh yeah, I think we've talked about this, right? Maybe when I was gone. Oh, okay. You guys talk well, about what, what's the example? What's an example? If you you can call it cauliflower, but instead you ought to describe it with indulgent words like dynamite. Mm. cauliflower or sweet sizzling broccoli. Hmm. See? See how that just even that tangy think about this. Tangy sweet peas. Yeah. Tangy sweet that maybe doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh rich sweet peas. 
Doesn't that make you want to eat See, it? See, but I already like all of these that you're listing. You know, it used to actually be called colic flour, but uh, yeah, you know, there was the association with babies and yeah, yeah, and they tried to call it cauliflower. Mm. No, nah, no, it didn't take off. So you got to think marketing, right? You got to think like a marketer. You could make it uh, like sweet corn. That's easier to eat than just zucchini. So you got to call it sweet sizzling zucchini. Then <laughs> you're getting somewhere. A little trip, uh, a little tip for everybody that's got uh, their kids they're trying to feed. Hey, an eight-year-old is our hero of the day. Uh, as you know, we like to always wind up the show with our heroes. Saturday, an eight-year-old boy was uh, named the East Texas hero for his efforts during the April 29th tornadoes. Zachary Cousin rescued his 10-year-old brother and 10-month-old sister from the family's vehicle after it was picked up during a storm. Imagine this. Our state and our country will be a better place if we had more people like cute little Zachary. That's what State Representative Cole Hefner said. The family had just gotten caught in a driving in a storm in Canton, Texas. The vehicle just come up to um, and started came up to the storm and started flipping as it was being pushed around uh, the entire road. It was crazy. Anyway, after the crash, this cute little Zachary cousin, eight year old boy, got out and then brought his say, his sister and brother to safety. So he's now the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. See, you don't have to be an adult. And you don't have to be muscly and strong to be a hero. You don't have to do anything just crazy brave either. Sometimes you just need to be willing to act on your instincts and do what's natural. Help people. That's the show, my friends. Uh, We do it every day, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern. We'll be back again tomorrow, but we can't do it without you. So make sure you tune in. And if not, go to iTunes, go to BYU Radio, go to MattTownsend.com. We're everywhere. Until then, let's take care of each other. We'll make it a great one, if you will, and we'll talk again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation, up next.